This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Guardian Angels. A group dedicated to fight crime. On the streets of New York and on the air right now. Curtis Lewa on 77 WABC. the Quinella. By the time uh, you hear me at 12.15 this morning, as uh, I take you on a lunch break all week uh, long, as I did the previous week, right after the Bill O'Reilly 15-minute update, 12 noon to 12.15. And then it's uh, yours truly, Curtis Lee, for 45 minutes in a rip and read and commentary, no calls. At that time for the full week, as I did the previous week. And when I say the Quinella, which means five, understand what I've done this Memorial Day weekend. I've done it before, and I can do it again. I told management and ownership here, don't treat me like a thoroughbred. I'm a Clydesdale. The more you give me, the more I do. If you don't fill up my lineup card, somebody else will. And they've adhered to that. Do they credit John and Margot Katzmatidis, the owners and operators of Red Apple Media, our parent company, and uh, Chad Lopez, our general manager, Capo di Tutti? Uh, they've said, you sure? You sure? I said, I got it. I did 32 hours straight one time on Memorial Day weekend when I had come on at, five, excuse me, at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I was substituting for the rock-ribbed all-American conservative voice of reason, uh, Sean Hannity from Franklin Square, Long Island. This is at the old WABC at uh, when we were at 7th Avenue. Oh, 17th floor. Not our place to be any longer. We're now in the uh, Tower of Power Palace provided to us by John and Margot Katzmatidis. But I started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And everybody wanted to break out for the Memorial Day weekend. And I said, sure, sure, I'll cover you. I got you. I got you. And the uh, program director at that time was a guy named Phil Boyce. He had left at 3 o'clock that Friday afternoon for a long Memorial Day weekend. He lived all the way out near Sussex County in western New Jersey. 
And then the next day he tuned in at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That was Saturday. And he called up the board operator and the phone screener and said, what the hell is Curtis doing there now? He's never left. He's substituting for everybody. Everybody said, oh, you're going to do my three, four hours? I said, absolutely, I can do it. I had my milk crates, my information. I had callers. I don't need guests. That's the kind of talk radio that I do, as you know. No guests, callers. In fact, the more interesting, the more voluminous the callers, the more intense you are in terms of conveying information as I conflate everything. The more you get to talk, y'all can squawk and not me. I know a lot of talk radio since I've been doing it for 32 years is the host of the hostess, they feel like they rule the roost. They got to keep yakking and just constantly talking because God forbid any caller does a better job than them. Well, I don't mind you basically giving me the tactical air support and providing information that I'm not privy to or experiences that our entire audience can benefit from. And I'm speaking a very large audience now. The moment dust came about, we're heard in uh, 38 states uh, throughout the United States, parts of Canada, a little sliver of Europe, and right on down to Davy Jones's locker in the Bermuda Triangle. And if you can't hear us on the old-fashioned terrestrial radio, you can be listening to us, as many of you are now, in your cars, your vans, your 18-wheel tractor trailers. You may have the WABC app. I highly recommend it because it's so easy to do with your smartphone, iPhone, uh, with your burner phone, especially a lot of you guys out there have the burner phone because that's how you can communicate with your gumada and keep it away from your wife. Ah, yeah, 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 the Motorola, right, the burner phone. But anyway. The point being an app, you can hear crystal, crystal clear in Buenos Aires, Argentina, or all the way over in Perth, Australia, as if we were right next door. And then, of course, there's streaming audio on your laptop computer or your um, work computer. So many ways that you can engage WABC. Now, uh, Matt, uh, I can see you're not used to, to dealing with me, Matt Blaze, because... I need a bed of music underneath me. I know you're used to doing the Frank Morano, the other side of midnight, you know, Rudy Valley, can you spare a dime, Al Josen, that kind of music. But I set an entirely different tone. And my job is to make sure that people don't go to sleep on me. My job is to intensely raise that tone to a fever pitch. So that you will end up joining the fraternity and the sorority of what I call insomaniacs. Those that have insomnia, but you actually feel, by the time I get off the air, at 5 in the morning for the one-hour news wheel. And then all of a sudden, I paved the way, not for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, they're off today. But for our owner and operator, John Katsimatidis, and his sidekick, on the 5 o'clock uh, roundtable discussion that John has with his many guests, although they'll be doing mornings. So it's the CNC show here at WABC. Katsimatidis and Suriani. That's right, John Katsimatidis and uh, Lydia Suriani. Sort of like CNC Cola. It may not be the Coca-Cola like uh, Sid Rosenberg and Bernard McGurk. They're number one in the mornings. But they're right there. So, you see, we're not doing best of, worst of. I can remember years ago when I misruled the roost in the mornings here. He would take eight weeks of vacation 
and you would have to listen to what he called the best of Don Imus. I listened to some of that crap, and I said, are you kidding? It wasn't good the first time you did it, Don. You must have a tight cowboy hat on your head because it sounds even worse the second time. No, 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 no. One of the reasons that we're now the number one news talk station in the nation again is because we do live and local. And it's none of this best of because it's just worst of. And that brings me to the point of not only having finished my normal duties, which is uh, 12 midnight to 6 in the morning, Saturdays. So nice they have me do it twice. Sundays, 12 midnight to 6. That's the other, other, other side of midnight. But I also do an hour with Anthony Weiner. He's got his own show now. It was baptized on Saturday. He's on from uh, 2 to 3. Then I'm with him from 3 to 4. Then on Sundays, and we obviously just finished Sunday, I'm on from 3 to 5. And then all of a sudden, Vinny Madugno, who is the rising star here on the entertainment side of WABC, he's earned the opportunity now to do two shows. Five to six on uh, Saturdays, right before his mentor, Cousin Brucey, who's on from six to ten. Then it's Tony Orlando without Dawn. And now Vinnie Maduno, teacher at Richmond High School in Staten Island in the shadow of the Bayonne Bridge. Tremendous talent. Does five to six Sundays before Jersey Joe Piscopo leaves from Wildwood to Point Pleasant in order to host uh, the Sinatra two-hour show uh, sponsored by Ramsey... Uh, Ramsey uh, hmm, Mazda. Yeah, I'm always saying Subaru. Well, they sell Subarus, too. And then, as you know, uh, I come back at you after Dean Martin from 8 to 9, 9 to uh, 11. And then the best hour of the many hours that I do, uh, the acronym uh, always stands for Always Broadcasting, Curtis. What you just listened to, the Animal Welfare uh, Hour with my beautiful wife, Nancy, who is a animal rescuer extraordinaire. And then I told Dominic Carter, who serves as a barrier here to prevent me from doing an inquisition of Frank Morano, that I'm doing a wraparound today. And Dominic had no idea what I was talking about. He assumed that Frank Morano was going to get his way because he's the golden child. Please, a little music, maestro. My God, you're so used to radio that appeals to an 80-year-old broadcaster, Frank Morano. He may not be 80, but at times he certainly looks 80 and sounds 80. What, with the pocket protectors, the lapel pins? Oh, my God. He's ready to go play shuffleboard in Hollywood, Florida, and compete against the Canadians, never mind out there in Staten, Italy. But anyway, we'll put that aside because I'm digressing. I need that music. I need to be able to pump and jump. And let me tell you something. I'm going to give you some inside baseball information. I really shouldn't be conveying this to all of you, but it's a pimp slapdown from Frank Morano. As you know, in the recent ratings, he was leading the pack. 20 radios out of every 100 were tuned to the other side of midnight. But unbeknownst to Frank, I was coming up fast on him. Ever since uh, I lost the mayoral campaign, there's a whole campaign out there, I might add, that, that people are giving out posters now that says, don't blame me, I voted for Sliwa. They were out there in College Point, Bayside, Whitestone. <laughs> They're being spread all over the five boroughs, but again, I digress again. The interesting thing is that Frank Morano took a hissy fit. He got upset that Felipe, Felipe, you know, he's uh, from French radio. He's sort of his... Um, what can I call him, his aide-de-camp? 
He is the man behind the scenes who provides Frank Morano with a lot of the information. You know, when he's talking on the show, it's Felipe who will get on the microphone unbeknownst to you. And in a channel that only Frank Morano can hear in his big ears, he will be feeding him information. That's a crutch. That's uh, exactly what Don Imus had years ago from Bernard McGurk. That's what made him number one, second to none. You took Bernard McGurk away, that would have been it for Imus. Well, now Frank Morano realizes without his aide-de-camp, his man Friday, Felipe, who is from Marseille, France, he can't function in the same capacity. Chad Lopez, our general manager, our capo de tutti for the good of the station, said we need Felipe to be added to the number one news talk uh, station program in Morning Drive that features Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg. And instead of being a good team player, you know, us and we, not like uh, I and me, took a hissy fit, and he said, I'm not coming in Monday morning. It's a holiday, Memorial Day. So you'll just have to play the best of the other side of midnight. I heard that. I heard that through the grapevine. I said, I'm going to do an intervention. I went right to Chad and I said, you're going to be playing what? A replay of stale news, old news, old programming? It wasn't good the first time. Why do you think it would be any better the second time? It's like having leftovers on Thanksgiving. You think the leftovers are as good as when you were sitting at the table with your family and friends? I said, you know what, Chad? I'll do a live four-hour show. He said, are you kidding? You've been on all weekend long. And I said, for the good of the show, for the good of the station, Chad Lopez, I will take this to the 5 o'clock hour, and then I'll be available to the CNC crew in the morning, John Katsimatidis and Lydia Serrani, substituting for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, 6 to 10. And I'll be here because I'm the lunchtime guy now. At least I've been given a second opportunity to do lunchtime after O'Reilly, who's on at 12 noon. Then I come on from 12.15 to uh, 1 o'clock in the tradition of Ed Koch. A lot of you don't know that Ed Koch, after he left his mayor, supported Rudy Giuliani the second time. First time he supported David Dinkins. Oof, I'm sorry, Ed. I realize you're in heaven up there, not down in hell without an asbestos suit. But you made the wrong decision the first time in 88, and you realized that, and you came back, and you endorsed Rudy Giuliani, and he gave this city a badly needed colonic, saved the city from being the murder capital of the world to the safest big city in America. And Ed Koch went on to be our mid-morning host. He was on from 11 in the morning to 11.45, followed by 15 minutes of Paul Harvey. Now you know the other side of the story. And he was number one in the ratings. He was the Frank Morano of that era. Number one, we had Rush Limbaugh on from 12 to 3. We had the king of talk radio, my mentor, Bob Grant, on from 3 to 7. He was number one. And then a year later, in typical Ed Koch fashion, he had a falling out with Michael Buttigieg, Rudy Giuliani. You're not going to win that one. You never do. And he embraced Al, Slip, Shady, Sharpton. And his ratings went right in the turlet. And then he said, no mas, no mas. And Rudy, to his credit, said, hey, that's typical Ed Koch. You know, you're like a peacock. You're like a lot of other talk show hosts and hostesses. They go and they do so well. And then it's a mighty fall from grace. So we need to teach a lesson to Frank Morano. He thought he could sit at home and get his way and get Felipe back. Well, let me let you know. 
I'm going to add insult to injury. Not only am I doing the live program, not only have I bogarted this program from Frank Morano because he wouldn't come in and do a live program, but I'm after your board operator, Matt. Matt, I want you to play that cut of Frank Morano that I found. I did the deep dig for my intel when you weren't here. You weren't here. Remember, Matt? You were down in Florida. You didn't decide to stay there like a lot of New Yorkers. You came back. Maybe that was a mistake. But you weren't here. And I want you to hear what Frank Morano said about you. You ever have to fire someone? I have to think that's a very difficult thing. Now, I have never really had a job where I was empowered to fire anyone. And uh, I still am not empowered to fire anyone. But, I mean, if uh, Matt Blaze were to spit on my shoes right now and uh, call me every name in the book, I would be powerless to let him go. I'd have to go beg Chad Lopez and John Katzmatini, please fire Matt Blaze. You know what Chad would say? He said he spit on your shoes and called you every name in in the book. It's about time that guy got a promotion. Matt Blaze, you know he wants to fire you. He was sending out signals to management and ownership that whatever Frank wants, Frank should get as the golden child, the untouchable. The future, as they call him, of talk radio and the here and now. In fact, he'll be at Talkers Magazine. Huge gathering of everyone in our industry at Adelphi University this Friday. In fact, John Katsimatidis is the keynote speaker. And they're going to be giving Frank Morano a special award. Michael Harrison, I've known for years. It's called The Future and the Here and Now of Talk Radio. A brand new award. That's your fat head to begin with. Now he needs a crane to get him in and out of the studio, so we got to knock him down a few pegs. So, uh, Matt Blaze. Yes. You heard what Frank Morano had to say. I it's, did. Seems like he's itching to fire you. Frank can itch all he wants. The firing will, will undoubtedly backfire because I have a plan in place. It is a long-term plan. Frank Morano has no idea that I have set this in motion and will always be two to three to four steps ahead. Yeah, you keep thinking that, Butch. You keep (laughs) thinking that, Butch. Let me tell you something. I'm going to do you a solid. Before he drops the axe on you and then all of a sudden you're out there in the abyss and then you'll find yourself down in Florida like so many others in our region, I'm going to throw you a lifeline. I'm going to let you join the big time, pro-style. That's right. You can join the varsity instead of being on the JV. Leave it to me, Matt Blaze. I mean, I had nobody. I had two people. I had Broadway Bill Lee, famous WCBS FM. Remember, he lit up. He lit up the radio world in 72, went into retirement in Fort Myers in that senior citizen, long-term health uh, We'll call it a spa. That's what they like to call it down there, where Warner Wolf is now. He used to do sports for me in the morning, and now he's retired. And he came out of retirement in order to be my board operator, but he can't work seven days a week. We have Avery here, who is not only what, – what, what is it that Frank calls people who answer the telephone again? The phone talent coordinator. What nonsense. He is our overnight producer and our phone screener. You see, he's doubled up on the title. So I only have two. Frank Morano had six. Now they've taken Felipe. That means he's down to five, and he has a little hissy fit. 
And if I can uh, purloin you, throw you a lifeline, and bring you on board to, by July 4th, the program that is going to be the ratings leader here at WABC, all of a sudden you can flex, and you never have to fear again. You're never going to be threatened with your job like Frank Morano threatened you, as you heard on the 50,000 powerful watts of sound, while you were down sitting shiver in Florida and eating the hamantashen. Well, whatever has to be done will be done. And I am not opposed to anything. Oh. What do you want to talk about? Oh. If, o- if it is an offer, I can't refuse. Of course. How could I refuse? You can't refuse. That's right. Curtis Sliwa. But anyway, let's get on to the nitty-gritty of what's transpiring. Speaking of Florida, there are a lot of travelers throughout the U.S., and especially in our tri-state area, over this uh, Memorial Day weekend who already have been stranded because... Once again, as pointed out by our colleague Bill O'Reilly, remember that dust-up he had at JetBlue when he was going on vacation with his pals uh, to some West Indian Caribbean island? Remember, it went viral. He was like face-to-face with the uh, executive vice president at JetBlue because uh, they were pulling his chain and chewing his shorts and lying to him and all the other customers because... In reality, they didn't have pilots to fly the planes. They didn't have enough backup crews. That's been the problem with JetBlue. And even though they are our local international airline, and we want them to stay here, we don't want them to leave Long Island City. They've been offered an opportunity to go down to Miami. (laughs) They may flee also. But they don't have enough backup pilots. And that's the reason that so many JetBlue flights are canceled before they even leave the tarmac. So earlier today, like you heard Bill O'Reilly about a month ago, there was a chorus, an entire chorus at uh, LaGuardia and Idlewild. That's right, Idlewild, a.k.a. the old timers know that's the new JFK, screaming, I'll never take JetBlue again. I'll walk before I take JetBlue. But it wasn't just JetBlue. Delta had problems. Other major transporters had problems. And it's all about the fact that they don't have enough backup crew with all the new COVID cases. And although it's very milder compared to previous COVID cases, there's been a study that's been issued that says there are actually more COVID cases now. It's just milder. And it's knocked out a lot of the stewards and stewardesses, the mechanics, uh, the uh, pilots, the co-pilots. And so a lot of these flights that you've booked have to be canceled at the last second Because the crew doesn't show up. And remember, they're not going to let you all of a sudden be like that one guy who had to take over. Remember the plane and landed, never had done that before at uh, West Palm Beach Airport. Remember that? That was like a miracle. And they're not going to let you do that. And a lot of those flights were stuck in Florida. And you know what's going to happen if people have another day or two to meander around Florida, whether southern Florida, northern Florida, or the western panhandle, and they see the freedom and the access that they have in DeSantis land, freedom land, that they don't have in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, and especially here in New York. They're going to come back, but when they come back, they're going to do a pirouette, and they're going to do everything within their power to move down to Florida like so many thousands are doing now. Even though there's a limited amount of rental space, leased space, co-ops, condos, homes, That exodus continues. People just want to go to Florida. They want to go to Florida. And I think think part of the reason is 
that they're so inundated with crime here and they've been turned into wusses where they don't fight back and the cops have been rendered impotent ever since the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd at the hands of the uh, Minneapolis police officers, the four of them in the streets of South Minneapolis, when all of a sudden uh, it was followed by anarchy, chaos, uh, the uh, Members of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, oftentimes after demonstration de jour all day long, would break out in shooting, rioting, and looting. And the cops all over the country were being told, step back, uh, to be reactive, not proactive. And it destroyed municipal police departments, smaller police departments, to the fact where they feel that they're impotent. It's not the way it is in Florida. I was listening to Dominic Carter. He did a great show tonight, really great show. He brought to life the horror of what transpired on that J train a little less than a week ago as it pulled into Essex to Lancy Street, which meant that it had left Marcy Avenue, last stop in Brooklyn, went over the Williamsburg Bridge. Next stop is uh, Essex to Lancy, which is the connection to the F train. And in the interim, You saw that psycho, that enemy of society going up and down that car, threatening people in a rage, trying to kick out a window. Grown men, grown men, some of them you could see, they were like 6'2", 200 pounds, solid muscle. They'd been in the gym all day lifting the dumbbells. They probably had a muscle between both ears, limited intelligence, but lots of strength, and they chose to do nothing. They were scared. And they were hiding in the corner. One guy was filming it instead of interacting and stopping this madman. And you saw this madman grab that female by her hair, pull on it. Say, where do you think you're going? And then she was saying, please, to everybody in that that train that was cowering, please help me. He's going to kill me. Please help me. Look at what's happened in New York. We've lost our manhood. We've lost our testosterone. There are women out there also who uh, maternally, with a mother's instinct, would risk everything and get involved, not necessarily for their children. We understand that, the connection, but for other people's children. It was a esprit de corps in New York City. And now, because of a series of criminal episodes, there is no response. And, oh, boy, is it different in Florida. And I think it's partly the reason that so many people are fleeing. They're fleeing down to Key West. They're fleeing to Dade County, Miami-Dade. They're fleeing to Broward and Fort Lauderdale. They're fleeing to Palm Beach County. They're fleeing to Orange County, which includes Orlando and Kissimmee right next to uh, Disney World which has been taken over by DeSantis in Florida. They no longer have the Vatican-like state of existence in which they're a country within a state. Oh, no. They've leveled the playing field. Whether you're in the panhandle in the west next to the state of Alabama, with all those who still fly the stars and bars, the flag of trees and the Johnny Red flag, or you go into Tampa and St. Petersburg and Sarasota, or you go all the way from... uh, Port St. Lucie, which is uh, swing training uh, headquarters for the New York Mets, or you go to Tampa, spring training headquarters for the New York Yankees, the exodus continues. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to know why 
part of the reason why so many people would much rather fight and die if necessary to protect what is most sacred to them, their property, their home, their castle. They can do that in Florida, but they can't do it in New York. They can't do it in Connecticut. They can't do it in New Jersey. They can do it in some parts of Pennsylvania. W-A-B-C. Talk station with the king of New York, Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. We don't know what homeowner. Mm, Matt Blaze, uh, a little slow at the switch there. What do, what do, you, what do I need to put Rustolium on you? I, I know this is a complicated show, the Curtis Lewa show, as compared to uh, Frank Morano's format. But you seem to be stymied. Wow. I may not want to throw you a lifeline. I may want you to go into the abyss. But ladies and gentlemen, I make this offer to the owners and managers of WABC, the number one news talk station in the nation. If any of our hosts or hostesses ever again say, oh, I'm taking uh, the time off. Why don't you just play best of, which is really worst of. It was bad the first time. Why would you want to add insult to injury? I will volunteer, give up whatever I'm doing at that time to come in and do a live broadcast. You, you, when you're the number one news talk station in the nation after we, we came from all the way in the rear. I mean, this was like a lucky strike a real strike or whatever that horse was, that hillbilly horse in Churchill Downs, the Kentucky Derby. Remember, an 80-to-1 long shot came out of nowhere. It was like 20 horses and beat, beat the field. This is what WABC did when John Katsimatidis owned it, when he bought it. He rescued us from the scrap heap. And now we're number one second to none. And that's because we don't do best of. We don't do replays. It's live and local. That's the mantra. So Frank had to learn the hard way because I bogarted him. And every other host or hostess here need to know I'm on 24-hour call. If you try to slip our listeners a Mickey by doing best of, which is really worst of, <laughs> I'll show up and it'll be live and local. So. Why is it that so many people are moving to Florida? Well, that exodus continues. I think one of the reasons is that law enforcement there have chutzpah, have hubris. They have culions. They have huevos. They are Florida tough. Listen to uh, Sheriff Johnson. He's not like that sheriff you heard down in Texas trying to explain the weakness, the softness of the 19 cops who remained outside of that schoolhouse while that 18-year-old out-of-control madman was killing 19 children and two teachers. Oh, no. Texas tough no more. You know, you have California, the number one state. We know they're not tough there. They're weak. We thought Texas, the number two state, was tough. Nope, they're weak. It's Florida tough. Listen to this sheriff. We don't know what homeowner, which homeowner shot at him. Um, I guess they think that... They did something wrong, which they did not. If somebody's breaking in your house, you're more than welcome to shoot them in Santa Rosa County. We prefer that you do, actually. Prefer that you do, actually. When have you heard that from any law enforcement officials anywhere in the country? And so nice, I want to hear what else that Sheriff Bob Johnson had to say to his constituents. 
And as I said, you know, uh, if somebody's breaking into your house, you've got all the right in the world to defend yourself. So, um, of course, he didn't get hit, and now we have to pay for him. So, uh, Say that. He was saying, I wish he did get hit, and he was room temperature. I mean, that's my kind of sheriff. That, that's the American tradition. You know, uh, so many of the guys have lost their testosterone. And this politically correct era, this wokeism, it's sort of like they're like snowflakes. Oh, I don't want to use my gun. Well, move out of the way and let the citizens do it because in Florida they're doing it every day. Let me bring to your attention the case of a 70-year-old Florida grandmother who shot and killed a home intruder and later told the world, I'm a fighter. Virginia Morrison said she was relaxing in her home with her 80-year-old husband, Charlie, when she heard the front door open. Morrison told cops that 38-year-old Ezekiel Rosario Torres, never trust anybody with three names, never, walked inside her house without saying a word, and his face was totally blank. She was startled. She quickly grabbed a broom handle, hit him twice in the face while yelling at her husband, Charlie, go get your gun, Charlie, go get your gun, huh, huh? You know, he's 80 years old. Get your gun, G-U-N. Oh, okay. So the octogenarian grabs his handgun out of his room and squeezes off a shot near this home invader's feet and calls 911. Well, Rosario Torres retreated to the backyard. And you know what they tell you. Once they retreat out of your house, you cannot pursue them. You cannot shoot them because now you're guilty. Whereas if you had shot them in your home or your place of business, hey, mense, mense, poco, poco, maybe we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But if you followed them and you were no longer under threat and you did harm to them or even fired a shot, we'll put you, my little pretty, in a daisy chain perp walk. Well, guess what uh, Virginia Morrison did? She followed this enemy of society into her backyard. And this time she grabbed her gun from a cabinet near her bed. She said, quote, I've been shooting guns since I was 10 years old. I grew up on a dairy farm in Tennessee. We had to know how to shoot rattlesnakes. I've never had to pull a gun on anybody, but I was ready. Morrison said she went back outside and locked eyes with Rosario Torres, who began coming at her. I went out the back door and I came to the fence and he sees me, Morrison said. He starts towards me. I fired a shot above him. Back off, dude, or I'll shoot you dead. He just keeps coming towards me. So I shot him right between the eyes. Responding cops found him on the ground in a pool of blood and pronounced him dead on arrival. Morrison said she didn't know what he was going to do, but I knew I was going to protect myself and my husband. I'm a fighter. I'm going to defend myself. Officials said they would probe the shooting, but they told Morrison, don't worry about it. We're going to give you a medal. We just got to file paperwork. Meantime, uh, this guy's rap sheet was all 500 Scott tissue paper long. I mean, you name the crime, he had committed it. He was clearly an enemy of society. Finally, Morrison said, look, my main thing is I'm wondering if God's going to forgive me 
for taking a life. <laughs> In Florida, God would praise you. Remember what they used to say about Florida? When Jackie Gleason and Art Carney and the June Taylor dancers were doing their uh, show on Saturday nights, and at the end of it, they were in the Miami uh, Coliseum Convention Center, and they say, come on down to Miami Beach. Well, that was in the 60s, and about half my aunts and uncles fled to Miami Beach. But that, they used to say, well, that's, that's where senior citizens go to die. That's where God welcomes them into his womb. He sort of puts them on the escalator in Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Palm Beach, and then next stop is heaven, possibly purgatory. But for some of those white-collar criminals who love to go to Florida because (laughs) it's a haven for white-collar criminals, it's the Sunshine State, go straight to hell without an asbestos suit. Remember that? Now. It's fighting senior citizens in Florida. Did they learn that? No. They understood. Let me hear that sheriff again. The sheriff giving them tactical air support. Sheriff Johnson, he's not the only uh, sheriff in in Florida saying that. Listen to what he suggests that his constituents do to a home invader. We don't know what homeowner, which homeowner shot at him. Um, I guess they think that they did something wrong, which they did not. If somebody's breaking in your house, you're more than welcome to shoot them in Santa Rosa County. We prefer that you do, actually. Oh, isn't that great? That's like music to everybody's ears. Dateline, Lakeland, Florida. Deputies investigated a homeowner who had shot an intruder as he broke in through the back door of his house. The Polk County Sheriff's Office said the break-in happened just before 1 in the afternoon. The suspect later identified as 42-year-old Stephen Stilwell, threw a flower pot through the glass in the back door and forced his way in the house. The homeowner woke up. He was taking a nap, like a lot of senior citizens do in Florida, you know, because then they got to go out for the blue plate special, you know, about 4 o'clock. And then, you know, they watch Jeopardy and (laughs) fall asleep. This old-timer shot that uh, home invader three times, three times. The homeowner immediately turned his firearm over to the deputies and say, I'm from New York. I know you look, arrest me. They assumed he was going to get arrested. They said, what are you talking about? We're going to give you an award. Would you like to be a deputy sheriff and help us? Deputies began providing first aid to this enemy of society who they said was lying on the floor of the living room. And then all of a sudden he passed to the hereafter. The gunman said he's lucky to be alive. In my house, only Santa Claus gets to come into my house, and only Santa Claus is invited. Oh, you love that. Detectives said they found the home invader's shotgun in the backyard, accessed a video from the home that showed the suspect running from a gate in the backyard to the home's back porch. In the porch area, they noted a set of French glass doors leading into the living room and said one of the doors had been shattered from the outside. And this is what the sheriff had to say of Polk County in defense of this homeowner. The castle doctrine is very clear in Florida law. A person's home is their castle. It is their refuge. The evidence in this case at this point indicates that the suspect illegally forced his way into the home.
The homeowner did exactly what he had the right to do. We applaud him, and we're happy that the home invader is dead so that we don't have to feed him three times a day, give him three hots, right, and a cot, free optical, free dental, free medical, free trips to the law library, an opportunity to work on his traps, his deltoids, you know, by just lifting weights. And this guy was a bad guy. Let me let me let me read you this guy's crime blotter. He had fourteen felonies, five misdemeanors, including multiple burglaries and larcenies, a DUI, drug possession, dealing in stolen property, fraud, possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of a weapon, ammunition by a convicted felon. He also had eleven rearrest charges with multiple violations of probation. Uh this homeowner did us all a favor by killing this enemy of society. You see, that's the difference. In Florida, they encourage it. You imagine here in New York, Tish James, the attorney general, the only thing she ever does is say, I want you, Trump. If it's the last thing I do, you, your children, your businesses, never goes after criminals who are impairing New York and causing so many people to leave, to escape, to exodus. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I know many of you are saying, gee, what happened to Frank Murano? How come he's not there? Well, he wanted to run the best of, which I always consider on the part of any talk show host or hostess, the worst of. So I was not going to add insult to injury to you. So I bogarted him and did an intervention and said, I will do the straight four hours to the 5 o'clock hour, and then it's the news roundup from 5 to 6. And then we start the day all over again, not with Sid Rosenberg and Bernard McGurk. They were away today. So you end up having, coming out of the bullpen, John Katsimatidis and Lydia Serrani from 6 to 10. That's the CNC crew. I like that, CNC crew, like CNC Cola. And not Coca-Cola, that's uh, the boys. But there's CNC Cola. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to John, who's patiently waiting on the line in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Johnny. Hey, Curtis. I uh, just wanted to let you know I I won a booby prize uh, last Saturday, and it was at my door this Saturday, yesterday. Wow, wow. seven days. Door-to-door from WABC to your home in what town in New Jersey? Uh, Freehold, New Jersey. Oh, God, Freehold, New Jersey. Birthplace of the boss, Bruce Springsteen, who said he was on the other side of the tracks. Then he ended up with the one percenters in Rumson on the Jersey Shore. Well, I want to I tell you, John, I appreciate the fact that you reported so expeditiously that we did not renege on our promise. I will tell you, though, there is an addendum to this, John. I received the letter from the dreaded New York City Department of Health. Never had received a letter before in my life. Assumed, uh uh-oh. You mean I got STDs? I've avoided that all through my teenage years. All through my rambunctious disco years. Never once got a notation saying you need to come in and talk to us because there are inanimate objects crawling all over your lower extremities, better known as crabs. Or you have uh, syphilis. I'm going to die like Al Capone. No. Penicillin is your friend then. Never needed it. But I received the letter from the Department of Health in Chelsea for the city of New York. And they said, 
Uh, Mr. Sliwa, it has come to our attention that you have been uh, promoting the fact that if people answer a series of questions, you will send them your belly button lint. Hermetically sealed in a WABC envelope with lots and lots of scotch tape that you will send it COD cash on delivery. So the sucker, I mean, the recipient has to pay for it. You must cease and desist because we are going to have to test your belly button lint to see if, in fact, uh, it is uh, a cauldron of old uh, STD, sexually transmitted diseases. I objected. I said, you mean STP, Andy Granatelli, the racist edge? Remember Andy Granatelli, STP, the racist edge? They said, no, schmuck, STDs. So we're at an impasse, John. I couldn't send you what I really wanted to send you. But do you like that hat, that WABC hat with the Curtis Lever show on it? I do, and uh, not everyone can get this hat, right? No. It is, um, you know, oftentimes you'll see young men and young women sitting outside of a a Foot Locker, Nike store, Puma store, Adidas store, because uh, uh, they're waiting for a limited edition of those sneakers. And then in true capitalistic way, they flip it and they resell it for for profit. There are limited edition uh, WABC hats uh, with the Curtis Lewis show on it, so... You know, if tomorrow I get shot or in a few hours, which it's always a possibility with all my enemies, you realize how valuable that hat will be, John? (laughs) That's awesome. I just wanted to let you know I got it. I am going to love that hat. I'm going to appreciate it, show it off, and uh, I'll always keep listening to you, Curtis. Yeah, and, you you know, if you go to a Springsteen concert, he's now on the road again with the E Street Band. I hate them. I loathe them. I despise them. And you happen to be next to the Jiggle Wiggle guy, Shamu El Jefe, Chris Christie, who is their number one sickle fan, toady and lackey, even though Bruce Springsteen always disses and dismisses him. He's been to like 178 Springsteen E Street Band concerts all over the globe. Wear that hat. Hopefully the boss sees it. And then all of a sudden, it'll, it'll affect him because he knows. I know his scam. Farmer Bruce, <laughs> writing off your property taxes by claiming you're a grower. What, hydroponics? You get a tax break for being a farmer? Who the hell ever knew that Bruce Springsteen grows anything other than viruses out of his toenail? Our number is one 800 Let's go to Andy, who's calling from Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Andy. Curtis. Curtis, I wrote the Dean song for Frank Show. Now, I wonder if you want to put it up against the Dean song they came up with for your show and give the people a chance to let us know what they really like. No, no, no. Hold on a second. What is your name again? Andy B. I was from in the movie Beach Street. I've been in the business for years. So I was sitting here one night, and I had to listen to you telling me, you know, telling everybody on the radio we were the worst. And, Frank, we went and recorded in his shed. I mean, come on, give me a chance here. You know, it's like... Andy, uh, are you aware that when I took the backs of uh, 
Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and Joni Mitchell in their battle against Spotify when they said, if you keep Joe Rogan, we remove all of our artistic creations of Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and Joni Mitchell. Are you aware that David Crosby actually wrote a special song for me for The Other Other Side of Midnight? Are you aware of that, Andy? Yeah, but see, I came up with the whole idea, The Other Side of Midnight, have a theme song for it. So, you know, that's nice and everything, but my song is my song is like something you, you like. Hold on a second. Do you realize, Andy, that David Crosby gave up his kidney? Are you, are you aware of that? Donated his kidney? Are you aware of that? Uh, do you know that David Crosby actually took the Petri dish and did a donation so that Melissa Etheridge could have a child? Are you aware of that, Andy? Yeah, but we're on to, you know, we're on to the theme songs here. No, 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 we're talking character. Character is important. Are you aware that David Crosby one time while boarding a flight at Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas Tough, which is weak, they clipped him because he brought a loaded handgun on to that plane. Are you aware of that, Andy? I do my work, you know, in, in, in silence. I don't go promoting oh, who I help. So who yeah, I wait, 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 wait. You're comparing yourself to David Crosby. Yeah, I had to sit here. Of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. How dare you? The I mean, but imagine it. little old Andy B. Sitting here. I finally have a great song everybody loves. No, no, look, look, I understand, Andy. I'm not uh, in any way, shape, or form putting you down. Uh, You are a well-known figure on uh, Staten Island, Staten Italy. Frank Morano is very parochial, very insular, very myopic. He thinks Staten Island, Staten Island alone. He needs to broaden his horizons. He doesn't have friends like I do all over the world. At that time, when I came to the aid of Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and Joni Mitchell, how many of you out there, the caller said to me, what, you're siding against Joe Rogan? Well, it turned out he wasn't making $100 million. He was getting greased for $200 million. I took the moral position, the high road. I grew up listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young from Canada, Stephen Stills from Dallas. David Crosby from L.A. And, of course, there was Graham Nash from the U.K. I knew it. You cut my veins and arteries. I bleed. Crosby still snatching young. And, you know, Joni Mitchell, look at her recent photos. She wears a red beret in support of the Guardian Angels. I supported them. They supported me against Spotify, against Joe Rogan. Did you support Crosby Nash and Young, Andy, did you support Joni Mitchell in their battle against Spotify? More for the the Staten Island Ferry, two thirty three in the morning. You know, it goes every hour and a half the boat. And those guys, you guys protected me many times. Two, three in the morning, I'm on the train all by myself, and who's there? Curtis Curtis Sliwa and the Guardian Angels, not Frank Morano. He was too busy. I love you. My mom loves my family. No, look, you don't have to chew my uh, shorts uh, and pull my chain. Let's play the song this week and give the people a chance. Wow. You love my song. Andy, Andy, you are a schnorrer, an old school schnorrer. 
You see, you you see what I'm talking about here, Matt Blaze. You want to be minor league, JV? Look, there's no doubt Andy has talent. He is famous on the island of Staten Island. But I know David Crosby, and he's no David Crosby. Of Crosby, still snatching young. In fact, when we come back at the top of the hour, because we will be playing Frank Morano. Oh my God! You know, coming up, his Father's Day is June nineteenth. Oh, can we have Father's Day? Because naturally, it's Juneteenth now, a federal national holiday. Most African Americans up here, not in Texas, not in Wisconsin. Not in Missouri, where I've seen Juneteenth celebrated years. Most folks here had no idea what Juneteenth was. Now, hey, it's a national holiday, local holiday. Juneteenth, June 19th also has another distinction. Many of you have been following me for the 43 years that I've been in broadcast talk radio. Know that on June 19th of 1992, remember, it was Frank Morano's friends, John Gotti Sr., who ordered John Gotti Jr., his underboss of the Gambino crime family, while he was in jail to whack me. And they put together the plot with the Carrazos, who I grew up with in Canarsie, who I hated, I loathed, I despised. And they told the Gottis, we'll do it with pleasure. They got Michael Iannotti, who just finished doing close to 20 years, for shooting me five times with hollow-point bullets. Frank Morano supports them versus me. And that occurred on June 19th. But let's face it, it's not Juneteenth that's important. It's not even the anniversary of me being shot on the orders of Gotti Sr. to Gotti Jr., Frank Morano's friends to the Gambino crime family. It's Father's Day. And I know Frank Morano's father. He's a good man, a solid man, an honest man. He ran for Congress. I supported him. I went to Staten Island. I took the Staten Island Ferry. I was there on the steps of the Staten Island Borough Hall endorsing him when others would not go near him. But what I heard Frank Morano say about his own flesh and blood, his own father, his mentor, a hero, a class act. You go anywhere on Staten Island. You go into New Jersey because it's... This man has gone back and forth across the Outer Bridge Crossing, the Bayonne Bridge, the Gothels Bridge. He's got a reputation. You say Murano in these places. They don't say Frank Murano. They say his father. Stand up, man. What Frank Murano has said about his father is unforgivable. It is a double disgraziata. It is a double shanda. He's too big for his britches. He's got to be knocked down a few pegs. It's emblematic of him not showing up tonight and wanting management to play the best of, which is always the worst of. I don't care what host or hostess it is. And I had to do what was right for the audience. Do an intervention. Tell Chad Lopez, don't play best of because it's worst of for anybody. I'll yeah, but you're already going around. It doesn't matter, Chad. This is the business we have chosen. And the choice we have made is to join the number one news talk station in the nation. And we don't give you leftovers. We give you prime cut. News spread. How can you do breaking news? 
when you're playing parts of an old show. Knowing Frank Morano was probably from like 20, 30 years ago when he was at Tottenville High School, you know, and he had, uh, well, he had two Dixie Cups attached and he was trying to do talk radio back then as a purple pirate. You'll see, ladies and gentlemen, I will rise to the occasion and defend the honor of Frank Morano's father. I know Frank Morano's father, and he's a man's man. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program. He knows New York. He is New York. Cred that the others don't have. Curtis Lewa. Talk Radio 77 WABC. What an honor to have the great David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young actually pen this song, go into studio in Los Angeles, cut it, and then exclusively provide it to me here when I was uh, asked to do overnights on the weekend, the other, other, other side of Midnight by John Casamitidis. I can't tell you what an honor, totally unexpected, He said, you defended us against Spotify and Joe Rogan when few, if any, stood with us and Joni Mitchell. So what happened? Go ahead. Go on Instagram. Go on Facebook. Look at Joni Mitchell's postings. She's wearing a red beret in support of me showing solidarity to the group of my generation that I will never forget, including Joni Mitchell who actually wrote the song Woodstock, that is what you remember from the documentary. Do you know Joni Mitchell was not able to get to Woodstock, was prevented, she was going to sing that song, and she said to David Crosby, let the boys sing it. Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, and Neil Young. She gave them that song. All five. I stood for them. They stood for me. And David Crosby magnificently created this theme song for me, for the other, other side of midnight. Andy V has taken exception to it. Obviously, he feels snubbed. Look, he's a great musician. He's a great songster. He's very creative. But I know David Crosby and Andy V, you know David Crosby. So... We'll leave it to our audience. Uh, can we play, Matt Blaze? I know you've played the theme song over and over, created by Andy V. There's no doubts about that. Excuse me, B, V, C, D, E, F, G, H. Let our listeners decide which is the better opening.
Let me just say that uh, since Frank Morano loves Atlantic City, loves going over the Outer Bridge Crossing to the Garden State Parkway, getting held up at the toll booths because they've raised the fares, and then the Atlantic City Expressway. Uh, this guy, Andy, what's his name again? BVCD. He would be one of those lounge lizards at one of those dives you stop at before you get to the hotels on the shore there. You know, look, little low budget. He'd be performing at a Super 8, Motel 6. Look, there's room uh, in Atlantic City for that kind of clientele. They play the penny slot machines. There's room. This needs a lot of work. This needs a lot of work. Am I right or wrong, ladies and gentlemen? Our number is 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-WABC. But it belies the fact that Frank Morano, although he is the ratings king here at WABC, still on the JV's team. He, look, can Frank Morano get somebody like David Crosby to do a theme song for him? Is this the best he can do? You know, I think I'd rather hear Yoko Ono screaming into the wee hours of the morning. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Enough of Andy B-V-G-F-H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P. This disturbed me to no end. We are on the cusp of celebrating celebrating Father's Day. Uh, I mourn the fact that my father is no longer here, Chester. Frank is a beneficiary that his father is still alive, athletic, trim. I mean, right out of GQ magazine. You know, I'd actually look and say, hey, Mrs. Morano, are you sure it wasn't the milkman? Because I've seen Frank. Are you sure that's Mr. Morano's son? But because uh, Frank is quite the athlete playing baseball, I've seen him out on the diamond. He's excellent. Just like his old man. So, yep, there's no doubt about it. That's Frank's father. Listen to what he had to say about Frank's father, proving Frank is a contrarian, a curmudgeon. Well, um, my father is a Yankee fan. I am a Met fan. It's one of those, those families, you know, sometimes families with multiple baseball allegiances are even more difficult to navigate than families with dueling political allegiances or families with dueling religious uh, affiliations or families with multiple races because people choose their baseball team and they follow it almost as if it is a religion. Let me point out, that Frank Morano, in many ways, is just like the guy he looks up to, John Gotti Jr. He stood with him during the trial and not me. Remember, Gotti Jr. was charged with kidnapping and attempting to murder me. Frank wasn't on my side. He was on the peanut gallery side for the Gottis. In fact, in that summer of one of the trials, uh, my intern was Alessandro Biaggi, who... Uh, her, fa- her grandfather, Mario Biaggi, must be turning in his grave that she she's running for Congress now. She who authored the uh, 
the law that strips all police officers from Buffalo to Brooklyn uh, of their uh, insurance, the qualified immunity that all other civil servants had. She did that. And her grandfather, Mario Biagi, is the most decorated police officer in the history of the NYPD, having 25 shootouts, 25 shootouts, and he survived. Let's put that aside. Frank Morano hung out with Alessandria Biagi, my intern going to the Gotti trials where he was sitting on the Gotti side, not the Sliwa side. But if you notice, he sets the tenor to his relationship with his dad. His father, a Yankee fan, right? Frank has to be different, a contrarian, a Met fan. But you know where that also occurred? Let me take you back. John Gotti Sr. was in the uh, big house in Allenwood doing time for naturally serious crimes. As a member of the Gambino crime family, he was released. He comes home. The Gotti home at that time was, guess where? Canarsie, a few blocks from where I lived. And as he drove down the block, Gotti Jr., his son, or his dad, he hadn't really seen him in years. He goes running to, to the house. Uh, Mrs. Gotti uh, meets and greets uh, John Gotti Sr. And actually, Gotti Jr. is all excited because it's his father. He worships his father. His father is known as a big, tough guy. And his father goes up and he looks in John Gotti Jr.'s room and he sees John Gotti Jr.'s room is festooned with New York Mets paraphernalia. It's Buddy Harrelson there, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman. Choo-Choo Coleman, Rod Keneal. I mean, a panoply of different Mets over the years. Even Jay Hook. You see, I'm going way back here. Frank Thomas, Marv Throneberry, everything. And John Gotti Sr. turns to his son, and John Gotti Jr. says to his father, who he worshipped, he idolized, you like it, Dad? He goes, I'm a Yankee fan. Rip that crap down. And dutiful... To the end of time, John Gotti Jr. ripped all that Met paraphernalia down and became a instant jello pudding pie Yankee fan because of his father. Now, you think Frank Morano would do that for his father, a stand-up guy, an Italian-American who is not a jadrul, not a knuckle-dragon, not a killer, not a member of Italian organized crime? Absolutely not. Listen to what else. He has to say about his beloved father. I was remembering yesterday a a discussion that I had with my father about 23, 24 years ago and maybe 23 years ago. And as I remember it, we're both watching the Yankee game and because we both like baseball, even though he was rooting for the Yankees and I was rooting against them. And there were at the time three members of the New York Yankees and I, I don't want to say for sure who it was, because I think it was Chuck Knobloch, Paul O'Neill, and Bernie Williams, but it might have been three other players. I don't remember. There were three members of the Yankees that all had their fathers very sick at the same time. And there was one player that was integral to the New York Yankees at the time. I don't remember who it was, honestly. And this player had taken off three or four games in a row to go and be with his ailing father. Now, first off, for purposes of going into a future segment in just a few minutes, 
Let's make it Chuck Knobloch, the guy that Steinbrenner got from the Minnesota Twins. They thought he was like going to be MVP Chuck Knobloch, who then lost his way. He thought he was going to be a home run hitter when really he was a punch and Judy line drive hitter. He just lost it, and then he couldn't even throw to first base. He's like Steve Sachs. But I, I just want to store that in your memory banks because this is going to come back to haunt Frank Morano. Now, you notice he goes, I rooted against him. Not rooting against the Yankees, rooting against his father, he said. Wow. Says a lot. Then Frank starts meandering. Talks about the Yankee announcers. I mean, what what, 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 what do you say? They weren't wearing the polyester waffle weave, uh, flame retarded uh, checkerboard pants of. Kiner, or Lindsey Nelson, or Bob, make that two Rheingolds, please, Murphy. We had Phil Rizzuto, right? That's all you needed to know. The scooter, the best. Bob Murphy, drunk. Lindsey Nelson, drunk, wearing those checkerboard jackets. And Ralph Kiner, did you ever watch Kiner's Corner after the Met game? The guy was half in the bag. And let's go to the audio tape. The announcers would say something to the effect of, oh, Chuck Knobloch is uh, taking some time to be with his ailing father. And my dad would say, what's going on? What are we talking about here? Why is this hypothetical player, Chuck Knobloch, why is Knobloch missing three or four games in a row? And I said, you know, because the announcers don't want to say that the father is dying. Because obviously, if the family is watching, if the father is watching, it's kind of a depressing thing to hear on television, even if you've already heard it from your doctor, that you're dying. Follow me? Got it. Right. Hmm. Wow. Barry Kurt. He didn't quite understand. So I want you to go, if you can, Mad Blaze, to... I'm a 56. I know, Matt, you eliminated it from the list. I saw that as a favorite of Frank Morano because he really digs himself a big one here. So I said, well, you know, I, I think his father's dying. And my father said, essentially, paraphrasing here, he said, so what? And I said, well, don't you think that's a little insensitive? He said, no. You, you know, these people have a job to do. They get paid a lot more than than I get paid in, in a week. They make more than I make in uh, six months. If your father dies, okay, you take a day or two off for the funeral. But you shouldn't be taking a whole week off. I said, really? Isn't that a little insensitive? Wow. Siding against his father with overpriced Egos that can't even fit within the, the the length and the width of City Field or Yankee Stadium. He's siding with those megalomaniacs against his own flesh and blood. Blood. His father. I know Frank's father. He's a stand-up guy. But listen more, Matt Blaze. I see you removed this one also from the playlist. Don't do that, Matt. Fifty-seven. And my dad said to me, "Well, you know, my father died." And I visited him when he was when he was ailing and dying. And you know what I did? 
I went to work. I visited him. I spent time with him. And I went to work. And the simplicity of what he said there, I found so interesting. And it always struck a chord with me. Yeah. You know, the chord, it didn't strike with you. You didn't tell the full story, Frank. Why didn't you tell the world that your father had to slave, do slave labor, in order to pay your tuition at NYU $55,000 a year, no frill? Now, he'll never blame his mother because he's a Mama Luke. That's why I call him a Mama Luke. Never blame his mother, who's a hardworking woman. But you know his dad had to work two, three jobs just to subsidize him. At NYU, that's like Ivy League school tuition. And he didn't get a scholarship. Frank could have made it a little easier on his mother's mother's, uh, purse, his dad's wallet. But, oh, no, he was too busy as a purple pirate at Tottenville, you know, wanting to be on the chess club, wanting to be in the AV squad, and wanting to be on the yearbook squad instead of trying academically to get either a partial scholarship or full scholarship. I side with Frank Morano's father, who through his sweat and tears paid for his son's four-year ride in NYU so that he could be called a violet. What kind of a name is that? What kind of a man's man? What are you? Oh, I'm an NYU violet. You go from a purple pirate to what? A purple violet? And it cost you $220,000? Only so you could become an intern at WABC? He doesn't mention that part of the story. I'm sure it caused his father all kinds of agita, like for this, for this, $220,000, and he becomes an intern at WABC? And actually, his mother would never condemn him because he was a mama Luke. He could do no wrong. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. But... No, 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 no. Don't pull the plug here, Matt, please. Don't throw uh, Frank Morano a lifeline here. He talked about Chuck Knobloch. Chuck Knobloch was supposed to come over, according to George Steinbrenner, and potentially be MVP Chuck Knobloch. He's a good fielder, threw well, but he was a great hitter. He'd go to all fields, opposite fields, hit line drives, like Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill would never go deep, occasionally hit a home run. This guy was a line drive machine. Anger management issue, but a line drive machine. Lefty hitter, Paul O'Neill. Chuck Knobloch, switch hitter. I mean, he had it all. He gets into Yankee Stadium, and now he thinks he's Mickey Mantle. You know, he's going to hit every ball 500 feet, and he could barely reach the warning track. And then halfway through the season, he couldn't deal with the stress and pressure of the media in New York City. So he couldn't even throw to first base. The guy couldn't hit the side of a barn. He had Steve Sachs disease. Listen to Frank Morano blame his father for the fact that he couldn't throw in baseball. Now, I... I There are not words to describe this. To blame your father for that is I always loved the position of first base, and I still do. 
it, it's my favorite position to play. Now, when you're a kid, when I was 9, 10, 11, that's the position I wanted to play. But what happens when you're at first base? You don't throw. You don't exercise your throwing arm. And I really wish my dad, um, who in one year, especially a year, I think I was in fifth grade or so, when I was very good at baseball, uh, offensively and defensively, I wish he had discouraged me from playing first base and instead encouraged me to play third or something else because I got so accustomed to playing first base that my throwing arm to this day is not what it should be in terms of accuracy. So then later on, as a teenager, when I tried to make the transition to third base, for the most part it was okay, but sometimes I ended up making these really crazy wild throws because I didn't have the kind of experience making the throws from third base that uh, that a lot of other good third basemen did. What hubris, what chutzpah. Uh, Keith Hernandez, you think Keith Hernandez couldn't throw uh, from first base, one of the greatest first basemen uh, who ever played baseball? His father guided him through his baseball career. Don Mattingly, think he couldn't throw from first base, huh? Joe Pepitone, think he couldn't throw from first base? The guy played center field for the New York Yankees also, and he could throw. What a lame excuse. You know what it is? Frank Morano went to the uh, Purple Pirate Academy known as Tottenville. Purple Pirates. They were the PSAL champion in baseball year after year. I mean, they were like semi-pro. You know, they they could have beat they beat some college teams. So he wasn't able to make the team. It had nothing to do with Frank Morano. He was a good baseball player. I'm telling you, I've seen him play baseball. But he wasn't good enough to make Tottenville's championship team. They were the PSAL champions. So he held it against his father. He said, oh, if only I could have thrown better. I could have played third base, could have played outfield. I would have been a purple pirate on the PSAL champion Tottenville baseball team. Can you believe that? That's why we got to knock him down a few pegs right before Father's Day. Hopefully his father never hears this. It'll break his heart. It really will. You got to know this guy. It would break his heart. All the times he took Frank Morano out to the field of dreams. And he said, you know, you could be just like Ray Liotta in the field of dreams. Frank Morano coming out of the corn stalks there. Frank said, yeah. And his father would get the fungal bat, the Frank Crescetti fungal bat, and fungal fly balls to Frank, who would actually get underneath and cup his hands and catch two. And then uh, he was able to throw it back to his dad, no problems. His dad was there for him. He wasn't overriding and overbearing like some Little League fathers. You know, they just they ruined the game for the kids. He developed a love of baseball in his father and what does he get in return? And notice how Frank did try to become Ray Liotta in Field of Dreams. And then as a good fella. Look, look, he chose wanting to be a good fella. He, do, he bends over backwards to cater to the Gottis, the Gambinos, organized crime. He has that podcast. Every other week it's a different Gavon, a different Jadru. They all love Frank Morano. They say, kid. You know, you ever think of becoming a made man? You know, you're all Italian. You got what it takes, but you got to whack somebody. 
Uh, Frank Murano, what is he going to whack somebody with his pocket protector? Do you see him with his pocket protector? Although I got to tell you, you could get close and whack somebody. Nobody would ever think you're carrying a toolie, a nine millimeter with a pocket. Who wears a pocket protector any longer? Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Billy, who's calling from the East Village. Your turn to be heard here. WABC, Billy. Yeah, hi, Curtis. Um, I've just, you mentioned the uh, Outer Bridge Crossing. I just wondered if you knew uh, why they call it the Outer Bridge Crossing. Wow, that's a good trivia question. Uh, why do they call it the Outer Bridge Crossing? I See, I can't even figure it out from the name, so I'm not, I'm not going to do a Frank okay. Morano. Well, that's, that's the key. That's the key. It's uh-huh. the name. There was an actual person named Outer Bridge that they named the bridge after. And where was Outer Bridge from? I I don't know. I I, I, that, I don't uh, know. We could you, look that, you could look that up. Billy, yeah. I'll bet you he's from Staten Island because where else would your last name be Outer Bridge and you could survive without being laughed I, out of your classroom? I, I, I uh, I'm serious. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, and then before I uh, get, uh, you know, scoffed off, um, uh, Ray Liotta, uh, why he died? No one's talked about that. I think it was carbon monoxide poisoning from the air conditioner, because remember they had the they had the, uh, these people and that uh, down the Caribbean that they all died and they were trying to wonder like for a week they wondered why and I, it was. Now let's uh, let's bi- bifurcate it. Two years ago, remember the DR. This is before the lockdown and pandemic. Uh, they were impaired, their entire economy based on tourism, because they said that the alcohol was tainted and people were dying from that. That proved not to be true. And then I think you're referring to the Bahamas uh, of late, or it could have been Bermuda, in which three people died mysteriously. Is that what you're referring to, uh, Billy? Uh, I, I do believe. I, it was like a week ago or a week and a few days, maybe. Well, look. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't know that Ray Liotta uh, was of a religion that uh, would uh, exempt having an autopsy. I'm sure they'll do an autopsy of him, and we'll find maybe, out. But, maybe, but there yeah. are people who sometimes just die in their sleep. I know, but but uh, yeah, but but unhealthy people. I don't think was, he was doing a movie. He was a healthy person. Well, it and doesn't. Like, no, no, no. Like, look, look at Bobby Darren, right? Bobby Darren, uh, please. He was not healthy. He had- Maestro, uh, give me uh, give me a little Bobby Darren there out of Goodfellas, uh, Beyond the Sea. Uh, Bobby Darren was a top flight performer. He would do nightclub appearance after nightclub appearance. He was only thirty six years old. You're right. He had all kinds of uh, underlying conditions. But we didn't know about that, uh, Billy. And he died at the age of, I think, thirty six. Yeah, that's that's like that's pretty awful. Right, but, yeah, but you know, all he needs to do is get we, a nutritionist uh, in, in you know involved with his life. But uh, anyhow, but uh, I, right, I, but, I'm but, saying, but Billy, Billy, we do forget that there are cases where people die in their sleep of natural causes, and not necessarily affected by okay. drugs or stroke or heart attack remember, or anything like that. You remember that thing where there was people installed air conditioners the wrong way. Whereas instead of blowing out the carbon monoxide out into the air, they blew it back into the room and people died from air carbon monoxide poisoning. It's, it's, it's pretty hard to detect because it's not like a, 
a severe poison. It's just, it's, it's very natural. You know, it's hard to detect. Anyway. Do you think uh, it could have been uh, like uh, the um, like the ten cases uh, reported of Legionnaires' disease up in the Bronx? That's really because of laziness. Individuals who do uh, do not I, clean the cooling yeah, well, system. That that's true. That's no, that's related to that. And yeah, you're right. That's that's related to that. Like uh, you, you, bacteria can kill, but I don't not. Not you probably if you're unhealthy, if you're a rather healthy person, you and you started to feel ill, you'd probably wake up and go call a doctor or something. But but when carbon monoxide poison, you wouldn't wake up. Well, you and, know, there have you know, been a number of people who uh, have died of late in their 60s. You know why I take note of that? It's like some people, especially Jewish guys, they get the New York Times, the obituary column, and they start reading that first thing in the morning. They don't even read anything else. They want to see if there's anybody their age who died and what they died from. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, they're neurotic. Every time I hear somebody in their 60s who dies, I want to know what they died of because, hey, let's face it, I'm in my 60s. I wouldn't have thought of doing that in my 40s or 50s. So, sure, I'm interested. What did Ray Liotta die from? But he might have just died in his sleep. Who is that guy, Deepesh Mode, uh, that Diaz was talking about? Diaz, who probably, oh, Deepesh Mode. Oh, uh, I used to be a groupie. Oh, I used to go to all the Deepesh Mode concerts. Not. God, he went on and on. That guy was only 60 and he died. Now, the likelihood is <laughs> rock band, <laughs> drugs. <laughs> But I notice every time somebody dies within my age range, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, what did he die of? Oh, God, he had heart palpitations, high blood pressure. Gee, I have that. Hmm. He died in his sleep. Are you sure? Was he uh, drinking the, uh, no, Bacardi 151. You think uh, he had a few shots of Bacardi 151 with Southern Comfort mixed in? You know what they call that, ladies and gentlemen, when you put Southern Comfort in with Bacardi 151 and you mix it with Kool-Aid. Let's see if anybody out there can get a Curtis Lebo booby prize. The typical Frank Morano audience would say, huh? I thought it's just a dry martini. Frank drinks six of them before noon. Well, guess what? Noon today, you're going to hear me the entire week like you heard me last week. Right after the Bill O'Reilly update from 12 to 12.15, it's lunch with Curtis Lee. here, live and local at WABC, as I do a rip and read in my commentary in 45 minutes from 12.15 to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Ha! Boy, you talk about digressing. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morocco. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. Baby, it's so far away. Well, there's a road. 
Take that, Andy V, V, C, E, whatever, author of the Frank Morano theme song, The Other Side of Midnight. This is classic Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Stephen Stills. And for many years, I knew Frank Morano. He was my producer. And he went through a series of uh, gal pals, girlfriends, and this song was playing in his head because I was saying, oh, my God, you need to drop her like a bad habit. Really? But he said, oh, I have to love the one I'm with because nobody wants me. I'm a mamaluke. And then all of a sudden he got lucky. You know, everybody gets lucky in life. He's not lucky in craps at Atlantic City. He's got to take reverse mortgages, payday loans. He just, every time he walks into a casino, they say, oh, my God, it's Christmas. Because he's going to lose his paycheck. Meantime, when he's got to pick up a check, like if all of a sudden he wants to take Matt Blaze out for lunch, don't expect him to pick up the check, Matt. He's got alligator hands. But he got lucky with Rachel. She's drop-dead gorgeous, a journalist, uh, the likes of which... um, should have been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize when she worked for Long Island Newsday. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, look, elected officials in Nassau and Suffolk County dreaded when Rachel would call them on a story. They knew there's nowhere to, to surrender, nowhere to hide. She's got the goods on me. She's that good. She's that good a journalist. And uh, Frank uh, Morano got very, very lucky. For all the times that he crapped out in Atlantic City promoting the Borgata, you know, snoring free stuff there. I, I know what he does. I know what he does. That's old old style talk radio. All the greats years ago, they all snored stuff. You see, Frank Morano is going to be going to the uh, Talkers Magazine uh, convention at Adelphi University. Like I said, uh, Michael Harrison will be presenting to him... Uh, the award, this is incredible. The future and the now of Talk Radio Award. I never heard of that before. But, oh, they made it all up for him. because. But he's going to be meeting the Altachachas in Talk Radio, and they're going to talk. They're going to exchange information about how they schnore free stuff. That's Frank Morano. But there is uh, what Frank Morano does every Sunday night going into Monday. And again, if you're joining us right now, Frank Morano had a hissy fit because his aide-de-camp, Felipe, who uh, came from Marseille, France, would always speak in his ear, would always do his research because he had a wealth. He had six people here on his other side of midnight. I have two people. That's it. So uh, uh, Chad Lopez, our Campo de Tutti, Our general manager said, look, the morning show is doing so great, and they are. They're number one in the market. Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, uh, we want to transfer Felipe to the morning show. They need the additional help. Frank Morano, you know, not, not, not thinking teamwork, us and we. You know, this is one big family. It's an I and me thing. So he took a hissy fit, and he told Chad Lopez, he says, Memorial Day, that's a holiday, right? National holiday? Uh, we get off for that? He said, of course, contractually you do. Well, I'm taking off. Play the best of Frank Morano, The Other Side of Midnight. And look, I've been doing this um, 
34 years talk radio, most of it at WABC. And I know whenever anybody says best of, it's really worst of, because if it didn't fly the first time, it won't even walk the second time. It's the lazy way out. So I did an intervention. I took it into my own hands, and I said, Chad, I am willing to do the four hours to give the listeners live radio. So if there's breaking news, they're not hearing something like – corned beef and hash from five years ago, which is typical Frank Morano stuff. And Chad agreed. He said, yeah, could you believe that guy? Because I had to perform as a general manager and do what was best for the station. And now he's going to have a double hissy fit as I'm throwing a lifeline to Matt Blaze that he actually said, and I brought up the documentary evidence, the audio, that he'd like to fire Matt Blaze. So, Matt, you think about that. You think about that. And then there's this tradition that he has established on Sunday nights going into Monday morning in which he puts out this uh, moldy, oldy egg salad, which can turn into penicillin or salmonella in Bensonhurst and pizza that he snores from some unknowing mom and pop shop out in Staten Island. Um, Some sad news for uh, people that work on this floor. I have finished what was left of uh, my Aunt Camille's egg salad. It is pizza day here on um, the other side of midnight. I did buy uh, several pizza pies for our staff here. And uh, the pizza was okay. It was was from a a joint that we hadn't tried before. And I did um, the method that I described previously. After eating the pizza pie itself, I used the crust that was remaining from the pizza pie to make a little mini egg salad sandwich, sort of dip the crust after the pizza was consumed in the egg salad itself. And um, i got to tell you, that might be the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. It was phenomenal. Phenomenal. What a gavon. Imagine to say that on 50,000 powerful watts of sound and his lovely wife, Rachel, is listening. That was the best decision that Frank ever made in his life. It wasn't to get married to the lovely Rachel and then have their son, Carmine, who must be doing that same thing. That's why he's 36 pounds, taking crusts of pizza that he snored from some mom-and-pop shop on Highland Boulevard and then taking his aunt's egg salad, which probably already was at the point of creating uh, penicillin. You know, I mean, come on. Salmonella, that's what you get from old moldy egg salad. Salmonella, who lives in Bensonhurst. He's always been a problem. But put that aside. Then he, uh, wait till you hear this. And as a result of this, we lost another valued employee. That's why we're so short in the morning. And Felipe had to change from the other side of midnight to the Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg morning show because of what Frank Morano did to Luke. So Luke said to this woman, Rachel, it's my final wish as a WABC employee for you to try Aunt Camille's egg salad. And Rachel said, I don't want to try it. I've never had egg salad. I don't know what to expect. It's not my thing. Luke said, please, this is the only thing I want. I don't want a gold watch. I'm forfeiting the rights to my, um, you know, to my retirement package. 
I don't want any sort of golden parachute. All I want to do is see you enjoy this egg salad. So let me tell you what happened to Luke. He got so ill. He was projectile vomiting right here. This was like uh, towards the end of his week. Uh, He was going off to work in a different form of media that it hastened his departure and he quit right there. He quit right there because he felt he had been poisoned by Frank Morano's uh, aunt's egg salad. Frank brags about that, right? You heard him bragging. First of all, he snores the pizza. He doesn't pay a nickel, dime, a penny for that. You know, he goes to mom and pop shop out in Staten Island. Oh, I'll talk you up. Everybody will know you. Uh, you know, you'll be like uh, La Familia there, you know, the uh, Albanian uh, pie shop. You know, you'll be like Goodfellas, owned by the Scientologists. You know, you'll be number one, second to none, a real schnorrer. You think he pays for any of that? Look at his alligator arms. Come on. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Joe calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Giuseppe. Yes, hi. Good evening, Curtis. Uh, first, I'd like to say how much I respect you, love you, and uh, certainly glad you survived your uh, shooting by the uh, by that mafia gang. So uh, I'd like to bring about another historical uh, shooting of note that happened uh, 52 years ago in 1970. I was uh, I was possibly a student at this college. Well, I took uh, I just got back home from Amtrak. I took Amtrak out to Cleveland, Ohio, took my bicycle and rode to a college called Kent State. Oh, I know it well. Kent State, uh, right there in uh, Ohio, right? Exactly. Northeast Ohio. And uh, if I applied there, I could have possibly been a student there uh, witnessing uh, history. Uh, Four students. I'll name them, if you don't mind. Jeffrey Miller, William Schroeder. Sandy Schauer and Allison Krauss, all 19, 20, and 21 years old, shot dead by the uh, ONG, Ohio National Guard. On the, orders, on the orders of the governor. Governor, exactly. Mayor Matt panicked. Governor sent them out, and nobody was ever uh, found guilty of uh, basically murder. They were all unarmed. One girl was walking from class to class. The other was an ROTC member. How funny. Uh, any one of us, you perhaps, anybody could have been there. And uh, I went to the candlelight uh, celebration there, of course, for that tribute. There was a whole hour walking around campus, uh, candles in hand, of course, and uh, two and a half days, three days of uh, movies, uh, speeches, and the whole uh, the whole uh, campus was, uh, of course, they have a museum now. And uh, it's funny that they wanted to... Sh- to dismiss it in uh, four or five years after the college didn't want to take over any uh, remembrances of it. And uh, fortunately, uh, students did. And uh, the fellow who flew the black flag in front of the uh, uh, pointing National Guards, Alan, uh, oh, what's his last name? Uh, Contera, something, something. Yeah, like no, no, no. That. In fact, they just had the anniversary. Uh, yep. Large number of the survivors of Kent State got together to reminisce uh, about those people mm-hmm. who were cut down uh, by National Guard uh, fire against fellow Americans, which was so ridiculous, so ridiculous. 
Yes, so so unnecessary. And it was a whole weekend. It was trouble there that weekend. Of course, uh, we were trying to, we, me, hippie, an old hippie, <laughs> tried to uh, protest what Nixon did. He said, well, we're pulling troops out, but before we do that, we're going to carpet bomb Cambodia with our uh, our bombers. And just just completely shook them to the core and the students said they had to had to react and that's what they did and unfortunately uh there were no rubber bullets no warning shots nobody shot into the ground they had to they had 800 feet was one person who was shot that far away and uh with that perhaps you could play a tribute ohio perhaps by crosby stills and nash one of them wrote the song right after that there you go there you go curtis i love you oh yeah Oh yeah, that's uh, that's Neil Young. Uh, you know, Mad Palais, uh You know, uh, come in with thirty-four. You're a real gavone. I don't think I'm going to be throwing you a lifeline. Come in with Graham, <laughs> hey, Southern man. This guy is like. Uh, this is what led to Chicago with yep. uh, the Yipsters storming the Democratic National Convention, in which the Thug Daily was overseeing mm-hmm. it. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. What's wrong with you, man? Number 34. Yeah. Number 34. I, I mean, my God. Well, yeah, look it up. Google it. This guy, Google, I'm telling yeah. you, I'm not throwing him a lifeline. Now I know why he works with Frank Morano. He's he's so confused. He wasn't even birthed when Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young was there. When you were there, Joe, in the front lines of Kent State, battling for righteousness, for peace against that governor in Ohio and the National Guard who murdered those students. Yeah, so true, Eric. I, I, I just, I love your memories. You you never forget anything. You're just like an elephant. <laughs> oh, next, play Ohio. Oh, there's no doubt we will. But I just want to remind you that what happened in New York City in the aftermath of Kent State, I'll never forget, John Lindsay was the mayor. He had hoped uh, to be able to run for president, first as a Republican, uh, then he eventually joined the Democratic Party, went on to run, but uh, got defeated, especially in Florida, where New Yorkers remembered what a horrible mayor he was. But he lowered the American flag to half-staff. At City Hall. And then the uh, city councilman from uh, Queens, who was the Queens uh, County uh, uh, District leader, corrupt as he was, Matty Troy, he went to the roof and he put the flag back at full staff. He had signaled the uh, construction workers who were building uh, buildings uh, in, uh, in the financial district, Wall Street. They came with their two by fours. There was Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, the Yipsters, uh, the peace demonstrators on one side of City Hall. The other side were the construction workers. And Matty Troy said, get him!" And the construction workers beat the living daylights out of the hippies and the yippies. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a soiled portion of our history. And this anthem by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young... By Graham Nash, come to Chicago. Come to the Democratic National Convention along Lake Michigan. And so many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands did. 
And remember, there was Dan Rather reporting, and smoke was filling in because the cops Mm -hmm. were throwing smoke bombs outside, battling the demonstrators as they were nominating Hubert H. Humphrey to be their candidate for president. You remember that, Joe? Yes, he was peace and love, yeah. Hubert was not not so bad. Mr. Nixon turned out to be a real winner, huh? Yeah, well, remember Rich, uh, Nixon, he was resurrected from the political grave when he lost. In running yeah. for governor in 62 in California after losing that close election to JFK in 60, he said, you won't have Nixon to kick around any longer. And then he resurfaced in 68. He saw George Wallace, how effective he was. And he said, we can pimp that ride and guarantee peace. I'm going to bring the boys home from Vietnam. But he lied. He lied, Joe. And he expanded the war into Cambodia and Laos. And we didn't find out about that until Daniel Ellsworth delivered the Pentagon Papers, and they wanted to lock him up in perpetuity. And I said, I got to read that. I got to read the Pentagon. Oh, my God. Look at what our government did. Remember that, Joe? Yes. Oh, distinctly. And then eventually, even though Nixon was riding high in the polls, I was there in 72. I was part of the peace demonstrators, a million strong, for the inauguration of Richard Nixon, who had destroyed the candidate that I voted for, George McGovern, the peace candidate from South Dakota. By the way, ironically, it was the first vote for Rudy Giuliani, who was a Democrat, who eventually became a Republican. Uh, One of the things I have in common with my Kumbada cheese, but I'll never forget going to Washington. A million of us were there. There was Richard Nixon with that crook Agnew, his vice president, being sworn into office. He pulled out at 82%. No president had 82% acceptability. In fact, George McGovern didn't even win his home state, I think, of South Dakota. I think he won Massachusetts and maybe Washington, D.C., or only Washington, D.C. Nixon destroyed him, promised us peace, said he would bring the boys home. And tell, tell our audience what he did, Joe. Tell our audience what he did. God. Carpet bombed Cambodia. Mm. Innocent people, innocents, mm. and Agent Orange forever. They yeah. have radiation poisoning yeah. for yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. And of course, Nixon comes off the airplane, two fingers up in the air on each hand. What were those fingers? Peace, love. Under. I mean, he was no John Lennon, of course. He was no long- Sammy Davis Jr. Remember how Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. would come out on the stage with the beads, the love beads, doing the peace yeah. sign? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, love. Yes, yes. You know what he was doing? It wasn't the peace sign, Joe. He was giving us the finger, both fingers. There you are. And then all of a sudden he was trapped. And he came on and he said, America's got to know that their president is not a crook. No. And Watergate consumed him. And then it was Gerald Ford and Barry Goldwater who went to the White House and said, look, you got to resign because you're going to get impeached. It's time to go. And Richard Nixon got on uh, Helicopter One, next stop, San Clemente. Then he came back to Saddle River. But it was a stain on the soul of America. Across the river, yeah. Those 
60s. Long life to you, Curtis. I uh, wish you the best, of course. Kent State. And just unbelievable. It's almost as bad as uh, JFK, Martin, and, and of course, Bobby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I remember. Could Frank Morano do that? Of course not. He wasn't even birthed. But Frank would, you know, in his way, I know, I know. You know, it's like the kid horse shack in class. I know, I know. Pick me, pick me. And normally when he does that and he jumps the gun when he really doesn't know, he has to uh, suffer through uh, constructive criticism. I have no idea what's going on. Exactly. Anyway, let's go to... uh, Al in Fort Lauderdale, your turn to be heard here at WABC, Al. Good morning, Curtis, and thank God that you're doing the show. <laughs> well, I'll tell you I what, Al, I, I will know. It doesn't matter. It could be Frank. It could be Bill O'Reilly. It could be uh, Sid. It could be Bernie. I have told management if they dare ever to try to do the best of because they don't want to be there live and in person, I will volunteer to do their show. Well, you know, they tried that yesterday morning with, or yesterday afternoon with Joan Hamburg, the best of Joan Hamburg. Jesus. Well, well, hold on a second. She's the queen. She is the queen. She's like uh, the queen mother, you know, in England. We got a curtsy to her. And she's earned her bones. I mean, she's been in radio, I think, since Marconi and Tesla invented the radio. She's really earned her stripes, uh, Al. Well, I enjoy ta- uh, listening to her. I mean, she's 86 years old, and Cindy Adams is 91. Oh, and what a fire plug she is. Nobody, nobody gets over on Cindy <laughs> Adams. Nobody. You, you, do uh, not, anyhow, you do not want to be on the wrong side of Cindy Adams because you <laughs> will pay. I enjoy her show, too. But I just wanted to say something about the uh, Bahamas uh, – incident uh, three of the people that died it was at sandals resort at on the island of exuma and one of the people that did survive she was airlifted to miami but they st- still haven't determined what uh caused the death of the other three i hope it wasn't egg salad i am telling you uh, I had some pizza that Frank Morano brought like three weeks ago with anchovies. Uh, no, not anchovies. It was uh, calamari. And mm. it was it was three days old, and it was moldy. And it was like you could see the penicillin already oh. forming. But he knew. He knew that that is my weakness. Three-day-old, four-day-old pizza. He purposely put it out there. I ate the whole pie. And I don't think I've ever been sicker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chronic Crohn's disease, ileitis, colitis, no doubt. Getting shot five times with hollow-point bullets and having a tough recovery on that. But I'm telling you, eating that three-day-old calamari pizza from parts unknown in Staten Island almost did me in. And I believe that Frank Morano did that purposefully because he even predicted that I would eat it. And I did. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk with New York's talk station with the king of New York. Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. Padre, Filio, Spiritu, Santo. This was the religion that Frank Morano was baptized in by his great father and his great mother. Right there in Mount Laredo, you saw that scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone was having his uh, child christened. And then he turned to his crew and he said, Today we settle all scores. And in typical contrarian fashion, Frank Morano did not continue on with the sacraments of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, did not go to the Novenas, did not do the Stations of the Cross, did not do his Our Fathers and Hail Marys, his Rosaries. No, he rejected Roman Catholic doctrine. And as I've heard many times, uh, and I know this to be true, don't cover up for him, Matt Blaze. He has renounced the Roman Catholic faith and declared himself to be a wannabe Catholic, an Episcopalian. From the, the Queen's lips to his ears, he sold out to the Church of England. Yes. And I said to myself, how could you do that? How could you be a wannabe Catholic? You had the whole enchilada. You were birthed a Catholic. And then what did he do recently? When he had the opportunity to christen his new son, a blessing, Carmine, who was birthed 13 pounds, right near Thanksgiving, delivered by... A 92-year-old nun from Mount St. Loreto, the convent, who helped the midwife and also Nurse Ratchet, who was there at Richmond Hospital. 13 pounds, my God. How Rachel delivered that, I'll never know. Now he's 35 pounds, and he has a new religion. You know, it's Frank Morano might as well go to the old Alexander's department store where there was like a different religion on each floor. He can't make up his mind. Now he's a Methodist like the Bushes, like Hillary Rodham Clinton, and you know the traditional Protestant faiths. They're frugal. You go to their home on a Thanksgiving, you get two little slices of roast beef, you get asparagus tips, you get the moldy green jello, and nothing more. You don't get seconds. How can he give all of that up? A Roman Catholic background in an Italian household where you'd have ten course meals. And then his mother would say, you want more, Frank? Now he's a Methodist, right? So no doubt he was not at all impaired by what I see happening in Park Slope. The curse of Bill de Blasio is upon Park Slope. Let me explain this. Bill de Blasio, for eight years, was the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope, who uh, single-handedly took a Miley Cyrus wrecking ball to the city that we love. While residing in Gracie Mansion, he would burn fossil fuel in taxpayer-funded SUVs with police escorts, even though he defunded the police to the tune of a billion dollars. 
simply to go to the YMCA in Park Slope to do his stupid workouts. And then cross the street to get his croissant and his cup of coffee. While contemplating what life was like walking about in Greenwood Cemetery. Afraid of the slings and arrows of the outraged citizens. The people who loved him in Park Slope. Who elected him mayor. And then he would sit there as he does now that he has decided to take a wrecking ball to our country and run for this new congressional district, the 10th congressional district that includes Park Slope, in the window of Toto's, that gin mill. And like a scene out of the old Friars Club, two phones in his hands as he is spinning for dollars, shaking down contributors, because he wants to deliver a mortal blow to America in the House of Representatives. And he walks up and down 7th Avenue, and he struts his stuff, and he's oblivious to the booze. And the finger that he is given, which is the symbol of Bill de Blasio now, and he has two houses, not one, two, worth over a million dollars of assessment on 7th Avenue and 11th Street. He owes the taxpayers $350,000 for misuse of mayoral funds in which he took the entourage of police officers assigned to him to Iowa where there are more pigs than people, in the cornstalks where he sought votes to win the Democratic National Convention, to fish fries in South Carolina, to meetings of casino employees in Las Vegas, and he got bupkis. He got Ugats, not one vote. Four months of wasted time like Don Quixote, and he spent $350,000 of our money to pay for the police entourage to make him look like Mr. Big Stuff. Who does he think he is? And ever since he announced... You know, bad things come in threes, right? right? It's not one or two, they come in threes. Let me tell you of one that cannot be forgiven. And in fact, I somewhat hold Frank Morano responsible. I'll need a little bit of time to explain this because it's right up his alley. There is a place, and I've passed it many times in Park Slope, is the house of the Lord, Roman Catholic, not Methodist, Frank. St. Augustine, Roman Catholic Church. It's right on 6th Avenue. It's beautiful. And they had a pure 18-carat gold tabernacle with jewels inside. They never had a problem before. Never. They've been, it's been there for decades since the 1890s. Not one penny was ever stolen from the poor box there at St. Augustine's. But there was a clandestine effort that took place two weeks ago on a Thursday leading to a Saturday. Thieves came in and cut off the heads of the angel statues flanking the tabernacle and left the Eucharist strewn all about the altar demonic, satanic, 
like so many of those DSA followers of AOC All Out Crazy, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who hate America and hate God and hate the Roman Catholic Church. Ever since the fear that Roe v. Wade would be rolled back, who did they blame? They blamed the Roman Catholic Church. Frank Morano is oblivious to this. Remember, things come in threes that are evil and bad. And all of a sudden, a Roman Catholic priest came to this Park Slope Church that has been there since 1890 to administer confession. And, oh, boy, a lot of those progressives and liberals have a lot to confess before they could receive Holy Communion. And he noticed the door had been wedged open. Apparently, the burglar had entered the most sacred space of this beautiful church and cut into a security system, a heinous act of disrespect, the pastor said. And remember, this iconic church right there at 6th Avenue was breached at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The sanctity violated And then the priest noticed the missing tabernacle and his heart dropped right to the pit of his stomach. He said, I could see that the tabernacle, they had been working on it with a blowtorch. They were well prepared and they cut into that steel cabinet and covered it. He said the removal of the tabernacle was very, very violent. The priest said he tended to think and look for the good in all people. So he never would have known, never would have thought that this could have been possible. Typical Roman Catholic New Testament, turn your cheek. And if they say turn your other cheek, you turn your tuchus. Whereas I'm old school, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Old Testament. He said, the priest, I always try to make sure that things are locked and that the church is lit. But these culprits have broken the soul and the heart and the support of our, of our patrons here in Park Slope. They exited through the front by breaking the lock, which is on the inside. They took our DVR, which contains surveillance footage, and it is missing in action. He said he's horrified. He said, I can't tell you how many police of various levels came and said, Father, this is horrendous. This is unbelievable. That was heartening and encouraging. He begs the thieves to bring back the tabernacle. As a human being, I say, you've taken away something that is so beautiful, that has given people beauty amongst the ugliness of their lives at times. A sacred thing should not be cut up and sold. A sacred thing should not be melted down. A sacred thing should really be protected. And so that would be my greatest hope, that as it is sacred and it's been used for over a century for sacred things, that it would be returned to sacred use. How noble, how godlike. That's not how Curtis Sliwa sees things. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is part of the curse of Bill de Blasio. 
We thought he was dead. We thought he was gone. We thought he was out of our life. He was like a vampire, like Rasputin. He keeps coming back. Remember, he threatened to run in that reconfigurated district in which he would have taken on Nicole Maliotakis, and then they redrew the lines, and he redrew, only to resurface again like a vampire, to threaten destruction to our entire way of life. So now the Catholic Church has become victimized. Now, in the old days... The Catholics there would have approached Carmine the Snake Persico, head of the Colombo crime family, who would bring cheeches and zips from Sicily to make sure that the, the wrong was righted. Meantime, he was also in the import-export business, the export of dead bodies in olive oil wooden crates. I'll tell you, though, Frank Morano, if he follows in the teachings and the legacy of uh, his friend, John Gotti Sr., and his evil seed, John Gotti Jr., do you know what John Gotti Sr. said every time he heard that a poor box had been stolen, a church had been violated? He says, I would never, ever, Rat out anybody who robbed a Roman Catholic church or the poor box, even if I had a steeple sticking out of my ass. I wouldn't tell them who did it. I would rather burn in the bowels of hell. And do you know when John Gotti Sr. said that, his, his oldest daughter, Angel, cried. Cried. She doesn't cry over anything. That was Frank Morano's sweetheart before he met Rachel. Oh, I know they had a thing going on. She cried when she heard that. Let me tell you, this uh, requires old school ways. In the words of Tony Imperiali, who had been the head of the the North Ward Community Organization, two-ton Tony Imperiali, who stood there while the riots were waging in Newark, with his fellow citizens, with helmets on and rifles and bats and sticks and pipes. And he said, you go no further, rioters. You're not coming up Bloomfield Ave. And they didn't. They didn't go past the Columbus Projects. And I'll never forget Tony Imperiali sat me down when I was organizing the Guardian Angels for the first time on Van Vechten Street, over by Elizabeth and Hillside, Hillside, where... That's right, Phil Rizzuto lived with Cora. Remember, he would leave Yankee Stadium right before the seventh-inning stretch because he had to get home to Cora. I knew Phil Rizzuto. And Phil would tell me, yeah, I have to smell the swamp gas on my way to Hillside, which was really the stench from the world's largest open-air dump, Fresh Kills, which was closed by Rudy Giuliani and Guy Molinari, thank God. But I started the Guardian Angels in Newark, the Dayton Street Housing Projects, right where Elizabeth met Newark, met Hillside. And Tony Imperiali visited me and he said, kid, I'm going to give you some advice. When you go to the little boy's room in the urinal, watch your back. Make sure somebody is looking out for you because that's where they'll whack you. That's Newark style. 
And I'll never forget the stories in the North Ward along Bloomfield Avenue is that Tony Imperiali, while patrolling his neighborhood with the North Ward Civic Association, caught a guy from the Columbus Projects who had stolen his mother's purse. She was going to St. Lucie's, which was down the block for the novena to light the candles and do the Stations of the Cross. And this enemy of society, this mutant, this cretin had stole his mother's pocketbook. And Tony grabbed him along with the other members of the uh, North Ward Civic Association. And Tony said, give me that ball-peen hammer. And he put the guy's hand on the curb. And he screamed to everyone in the projects, I want you to see what happens to a thief. And he took that ball-peen hammer and he broke every knuckle in that thief's hand. And now you know the legacy of Tony Imperiali. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. That was strike one in beloved Park Slope. The epicenter of the uh, progressives, the DSA, the hipsters, the millennials. And the second, the second curse to affect Park Slope because of the candidacy, the resurrection of that vampire, Bill de Blasio and his disgraziata wife, Charlene McRae, who have stolen one and a half billion dollars from that Fugazi program called Thrive over six years that never helped one emotionally disturbed person, not one. The money probably in a personal bank account. Panama, the Cayman Islands, or probably Switzerland. So what also happened? As I said, bad things happen in threes. For two decades, in the heart of Park Slope, was this popular store. I've been to it. I think most people have been to it. Hiller and Moon. They sell cheeses, which is Frank Morano's favorite. You know, he's the fromage guy. Cheese. He puts his beak and every vat of cheese he finds, from Velveeta Kraft cheese, the cheapest, to the most expensive of imported Italian and French cheeses. The owner and operator recalled that a fire consumed the entirety of Hiller and Moon. He believed it was an electrical fire. When I was growing up, I said, hey, how is it? The Bamboo Lounge of Goodfellas got torched for the insurance money. And Crazy Sal told me, hey, you know, it was electricity. It was lightning. Although they always blame the Jews for that. Said, oh, Jewish electricity, Jewish lightning. Remember? Remember that? Now, look at it. The tenants have all evacuated. The ground floor shop totally destroyed, extensive flame and smoke, and no more au fromage, no more imported cheeses from France and Italy. Another great institution taken away from Park Slope. Two strikes. Yet, what survived? The papier-mâché mascot, the Gideon Rooster, an almond that if Bill de Blasio could be taken down and prevented from winning the Democratic primary of the 10th Congressional District in August, everything will be righted. And then the third, the third sin, 
was the tragic murder of Daniel Enriquez. The name Daniel Enriquez, you say, how do I know that name? It was just a Sunday ago. Remember, he was in the back car of that Q train at 1130, coming over the Manhattan Bridge. He's going to come have brunch with a friend of his. And then some guy was pacing up and down, Abdullah Abdullah, fingering a gun. Everybody was paralyzed in fear. And then Abdullah walks up to Daniel Enriquez and shoots him once, killing him as he bled out on that floor. And then he turned to all the other commuters and he said, don't look at me, turn your cell phones off, and you're getting off in the next stop, Canal Street. We didn't know at that time that the victim, Daniel Enriquez, was actually an employee at Goldman Sachs. And we didn't know that Daniel Enriquez, for years, while a resident of Park Slope, would regularly go as a customer to look at that Gideon rooster that survived the fury of the fire and shop at his favorite store, Hillary and Moon. The owner-operator said... Daniel Enriquez lived just two blocks away. He came by to make sure we were all okay each and every day. Three sins of omission because of Bill de Blasio. Back to back, belly to belly. Would Frank Morano have been able to connect all these dots? Of course not. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Edward in Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Edward. Yeah, hi. I'm calling about the naming of the Outer Bridge. The Outer Bridge Crossing. That is correct. Right. It was named after former governor of New York whose name was Outer Bridge. What kind of, what, what, what kind of a name is that, Outer Bridge? Okay. I know. Well, he had a sister called Mary Outerbridge, and while he was governor, she traveled to, I believe, the Bahamas, or maybe it was Europe, and she discovered the game of tennis, and she brought it back to the United States, and the first game of tennis was played on Staten Island in Walker Park, and the United States Tennis Association, in honor of that, has named her the, the mother of tennis. Uh, she was buried on Silver Mount Cemetery, and my rear windows of my house overlooked the cemetery. So she's there somewhere. Edward, my mother Francesca, bless her soul, who is up in heaven, no doubt, would always say to me, as I'm sure your mother and other mothers have always told their sons and daughters, never say anything negative about the dead, right? You heard that, Edward. Well, what, what was negative? That he was governor of New York? No. You said that his sister, Mary Outerbridge, right? Right. Brought tennis she, to America, right? Yeah, and she played the first game on Staten Island at Walker Park. I hate tennis with a passion, Edward. I don't like it either. I'm no good at it. I was forced to go to the U.S. Open by our vice president of what they call the spoken word. They don't say talk radio. You know, it's got to be artsy-fartsy. Vice president of the spoken word. What the hell does that mean? He said to me, Curtis, I want you to accompany me to my passion. Every year I go to the U.S. Open 
at um, Armstrong Stadium there, right across the street from City Field on the number seven train. We're going to take the Long Island Railroad right there with all the she-she crowd. I'm going to pay $48 for a microscopic piece of quiche, and we're going to cheer on all of the tennis stars and starlets. And I stood I stood up there, and uh, they put my photo, my my video on the jumbotron there, and I, I look like Benito, Benito Mussolini looking upon all of them. I had that smirk, and they booed me unmercifully. Booed me, Edward, because they knew I hate tennis. Well, a you, lot of people do. You, you've ruined my morning by telling me who brought tennis to America. Well, that was Governor Outerbridge's sister, Mary. Well, never ever take the Outer Bridge crossing again. I would much rather take the Gothels Bridge. I would much rather take the Bayonne Bridge. I would much rather take a Tom Sawyer flatboat and go from Tottenville to Perth Amboy and risk the current and the undertow of the Arthur Kill and the Kill Van Cull. Does that tell you how much I hate tennis? I believe you do. All those bridges are almost $20 each, too. It's another reason not to take it. That's true. They clip you big time. Let me tell you another story. There I was doing Angels in the Morning with my wife at that time. Which which number wife was that? Uh, Matt, two, three, four or more? I don't know. Oh, it was Lisa. And Lisa was a friend of David Dinkins. I was not. My Kumbari Cheech was Rudy Giuliani, who was running to save the city from David Dinkins. So David Dinkins had only one passion, actually two. Like this mayor, the swagger man who has no plan, oh, he loves suits. In fact, sometimes David Dinkins would change into two or three suits a day, custom-made suits, and he would have his uh, aide-de-camp, Arnie Segarra, carry around the suit bag with him wherever David Dinkins would go. But his real passion was tennis. The only reason he ever went to Queens was for the U.S. Open. It's like a little kid dressed in tennis whites. He would go there with his tennis racket. So he calls up Lisa and he says, I'm inviting you and Curtis to the U.S. Open. I said, oh, no. He said, got to go. He's the mayor for the good of the program. I hate tennis. Don't worry. Just go. Just close your eyes. You know, you, don't worry. You're not going to all of a sudden become like the creme de la creme. You know, you're, you're, you're a knuckle dragon. So I went. I sat there with Mayor Dinkins. I had the creepy crawlers, the tennis crowd. There was Billie Jean King Moffat. Yeah, that was her name, Moffat, Billie Jean King. I loathed her. I despised her. There was Fred Stolle from Australia. I hated him. There was Emerson from Australia. I hated him. I hated them all. I survived it. And then uh, one day, a challenge came down from David Dinkins himself. He goes, I hear you're making fun of my aide-de-camp, Arnie Segarra, because he carries my suit bag everywhere. I said, that's right, Mr. Mayor. Arnie Segarra, street guy, Puerto Rican, has challenged you to a game of basketball, and I'm making sure that the main court in Madison Square Garden is available for that. 
game of 21. And that uh, was right below our uh, our uh, WABC broadcasting uh, facility there at Tupin Plaza. It was a lunchtime crowd. And I'm telling you, I, 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 I hate tennis so much. If I lost in a game of 21, I'd have to wear tennis whites, come to Gracie Mansion, and meet and greet everybody that day. I had to win. Arnie Segura, his problem was he was a great athlete, but he smoked like four packs of cigarettes, no filters a day, you know, Chesterfield, chest breakers. So I knew I could take him to the hoop, that eventually he would run out of steam, but he didn't. He had this turnaround jump shot in the corner, and, man, it was hitting net. And then I was hitting it out, typical white boy style, 35 feet out. This is before they had the three points, right? 35 feet out. Kiki Vanderveen of the... uh, of the Knicks was out there taking shots on the other side of the court. He goes, oh, my God. The game was 1918. I was ahead. David Dinkins called a timeout. And he looked at Mark Green, who was the referee, his consumer uh, affairs chief, and he said, if Curtis Lee wins this game, Mark, don't bother coming back to City Hall. You're persona non grata. That's how high the stakes were. And so naturally... What did Mark Green do? He wanted job security. Kept calling fouls on me, fouls, sissy fouls, you know. And eventually, Arnie Segura won 21-20. And I'm not a welcher. I'm not a deadbeat. I'm not like a slacker like Frank Morano who forgets the promises that he makes. I showed up at City Hall, and for a full day from 8 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. at night, I was dressed in tennis whites with a racket, Meeting and greeting every Democrat who is coming there to visit David Dinkins. Now you know I hate, I loathe tennis. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77. <laughs> New York. He is New York. Cred that the others don't have. Curtis Lewa. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Uh, it's the hipster millennial anthem. Not only for all those who live in Park Slope. But there's Alex, who's part of the Frank Morano crew, hipster millennial. Diaz, preparing the news for the 5 o'clock hour. This is their anthem. Uh, let them listen to this. They'll probably start having vapors and crying. Wish we'd known. We'll blow away with this new sun. But I. Wait for Frank Morano. You'll be waiting a month of Sundays. This is what the hipsters and millennials literally, I just get so into a sexual, psychotic frenzy. 
all of a sudden, you'll see hipster millennial women put down the book that they're reading. You know, it's a book they always read when they're having their, their cappuccinos sitting there with their dresses, their gingham dresses, their floral dresses on. Catcher in the Rye. All those hipster millennial females always, they all read from the same book. Catcher in the Rye. Walk up and down 7th Avenue, 6th Avenue in Park Slope. Why do they all read the book Catcher in a Rye, huh? And oh, this is their anthem. They love this. If you were to go into Park Slope and play this, you could win the 10th Congressional District. If all of a sudden the Mumf- Mumford and Sons were giving you backup. Well, you know something, you hipster and millennials here at WABC, I hate, I loathe this song. Because I'm not going to wait for you. Kill it! Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And let me tell you about something that was missing this weekend so far. This is the one day to go. At the James Romanelli Funeral Home. And I know you say, oh, Curtis, that's that's where they laid out my mother, my father, in Ozone Park there on uh, Rockaway Boulevard. Hey, I know my Aunt Mary was laid out there from Old Howard Beach. They did an excellent job. You know, that's the kind of funeral parlor you go to where you look at the person in the casket and you say, oh, they look better uh, in death in the casket than they ever looked in life. The mortician did an amazing job. And Frank Morano, he's the kind of guy, he goes to wakes of strangers. I've never, hey guy, he sees a wake. He sees it. Wow, there's somebody actually whose body is out there for viewing. He goes there to get a cup of coffee and the free entomon cake in the back. And all the people say, who is that? Do we know that he's a fellow worker? God, he says, no, he says he doesn't know the guy. He just, he wants to pay his respects. Is that now not weird? But anyway, at the James Romanelli Funeral Home on Rockaway Boulevard, there was the Golden Sachs research, researcher, Daniel Enriquez, who was killed in the last car of that Q train and went over the Manhattan Bridge last Sunday at 11.30, and then he was shot and killed by this uh, Guy, Abdullah, Abdullah, hardcore gangbanger from Harlem, a crypt. And the reason I mention that is uh, some of our guardian angels went and paid their respects on Friday. Mayor Eric Adams, uh, the swagger man who has no plan, uh, was a no-show. I don't know if he uh, had intentions of going to pay respects. And then on Sunday was the second day of the wake, uh, and apparently, I I don't know this to be true, but I don't think our mayor made an appearance. He really should have, but for whatever reason, he didn't. I think the reason he didn't is because, remember, the family of uh, Daniel Enriquez did not have very nice things to say about our mayor. Basically, remember, they said, do your freaking job. You said you're the law and order mayor. Now, this is coming from Park Slope, folks. They're of Mexican ancestry. They are very liberal. They are very progressive. But now that crime is affecting them in Park Slope, at the church, at the store, one of their the citizens they were most proud of, Daniel Enriquez from Goldman Sachs, you know what the old line is. 
A conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. And that district is going to start changing when they see these kinds of horrific crimes that affect so many other neighborhoods in our city, but for the most part have never affected Park Slope over the years. They, they too, will change. There is going to be a funeral mass at the Transfiguration Church off of Marcy Avenue in Williamsburg for Danielle, Danielle Enriquez Tuesday morning. I think it behooves the mayor to be there. I certainly am going to try to be there. I have to be back in time to do a lunch hour here at WABC right after uh, Bill O'Reilly's update from 12 to 12.15. Then I'll be on from 12.15 to 1 o'clock uh, doing a rip and read and commentary. So I hope that I'll be able to do both. But I know Transfiguration Church. Uh, I can remember receiving a phone call from Father Stephen. It was uh, 1981, two years after I started the Guardian Angels up at uh, Fordham and Webster in the Mickey D's there. Uh, I was the night manager there. I was living on uh, University, West Fordham Road, in the shadow of St. Nicholas at Tallentine. And I got the call. Remember, there were no cell phones then. I got the call on the house phone. It barely worked. And it was Father Stephen from uh, Transfiguration Church. And that area at that time was not like it is now. It was all gangs. There was the unknown bikers, the bikers, the dirty ones. Uh, There was the uh, Golden Guineas. I mean, I go through a whole panel. It was bad. South Side was bad. Third and Roebling. I mean, that was a war zone. You had the Asidum, the Satmar on one side of Broadway. And you had the Puerto Riqueños on the other side. And further over on uh, North Driggs. Uh, Near McCarran Park, you had the remaining uh, Italians uh, that would not leave until the fig tree died. But, man, that was a war zone. So Father Stephen says, Curtis, I want you to come over. I've got some wayward youth, and I want you to lecture them. You know, we have them over every Tuesday and Thursday night in the basement. Uh, They play pool. They lift weights, and we try to get them back on track. I said, hey, for you, Father, anything. You know, if I could... And he goes, maybe you can uh, recruit some of them. It would serve the community well if they were guardian angels and not unknown bikers or bikers or filthy mad dogs. That's right, FMDs, a bad crew there, bad crew. Uh, There's just so many gangs there. So I take the guardian angels from the Bronx and we go down to uh, Delancey and Essex which is the very station that uh, you heard Dominic Carter talking about, that J-train pulled in when that woman had been so traumatized by that emotionally disturbed crackpot who not only terrorized that train of the J-train and threatened everybody, but remember, said to that woman, where do you think you're going? And they pulled her hand. She was begging all these grown men on the train, please help me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And what are these grown men filled with testosterone who probably just came from a, a workout at the gym? What did they do? They, ooh, they shrunk. Oh, 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 I'm so afraid. One of them filmed it. This guy is on the loose. But I digress. So we took the J train from the Essex Street station uh, uh, after uh, connecting off the F to the J, and we got off on Marcy Avenue, which is the above-ground station first stop in Brooklyn. And we walked over to the Transfiguration Church, and let me tell you something. 
There were a lot of cars that were circling us like buzzards. And they were gangbangers. And they were eyeballing us. Uh, they were mad-dogging us, eye-fornicating us. And I could sense, my street smarts could sense we're trapped. We're not going to be able to get out of it. So we get to the church, and Father Stephen uh, meets us. And he said, Curtis, they're all waiting for you downstairs with pool cues in their hand. They stopped playing pool, and they started to beat the living daylights out of me. And then this guy named Ducky, who was an unknown biker, he has all these rings on his finger, and he gives me an uppercut and busts my nose wide open. I'm bleeding out everywhere. And I signaled to the guys, retreat. We're going to get killed here. We're surrounded. Father Stephen said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, my God, this guy's so hopelessly naive. So we had a fight our way. It was like a scene out of the Warriors, that cult classic. It came out at the same time that I started the Guardian Angels. Uh, The Warriors came out on February 18th. It was a Paramount film. And the Guardian Angels I introduced on February 13th, on Friday the 13th, with 13 members of the Magnificent 13th. Think I was testing fate? I was. Well, we had to run for our lives to the J train on Marcy Avenue. We're fighting off gang members galore. I'm bleeding out. My whole nose is, is broken. It's opened up. And remember that, that scene where the Warriors are running from Van Cortland Park because uh, the guy who had summoned them there, the charismatic gang uh, leader, Cyrus, had been shot in the crowd when he was telling them, there are more gang members here than there are cops. We can take over the city. And then a single solitary shot was fired, and everyone think the Warriors did it. And all the gangs started chasing the Warriors, who were from Coney Island, Stillwell Avenue on the D train, and they had to run to the nearest train, and they barely got onto that one train. The doors were closing, and remember, they would have been killed. That's what it was like for us. And we rode back to the Bronx. Who calls the next day? Father Stephen, the naive one, a transfiguration church. He said, uh, Curtis, you think maybe you want to come again and try it? Maybe it was your approach. Maybe it was my approach. This guy was hopelessly naive. Uh, I really think it's incumbent, if any of you are listening out there, to please go to the funeral mass for Goldman Sachs researcher Daniel Enriquez, originally from Mexico, who loved this city, lived there in Park Slope, whose family loves this city. I can tell you just from reading the interviews from what my guardian angels told me who did pay their last respects at James Romanelli's funeral home on Rockaway Boulevard in Ozone Park and uh, pay respects to Daniel Enriquez because Apparently, our mayor, a swagger man who doesn't have a plan to deal with crime, the only plan he seems to have is to try to get into Pennsylvania Avenue and the White House, although I think he'll probably get into the uh, the big house before he gets to the White House uh, in chains and shackles at the rate he's going. But uh, please, make some time to go there. Do the right thing. As we launch uh, a war against this criminal horde that is causing so many of our residents to leave. Remember, my battle cry during the mayoral campaign was improve, don't move. That's what I believe. But I do understand why so many of you can no longer wait.
Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Al in Westchester. Your turn to be heard here in WABC, Al. How are you, Curtis? I'm okay. Good. Uh, kudos to you and the Guardian Angels for going to the wake of the 11-year-old girl, <laughs> girl that got killed on Simpson Street. I actually went to put a candle and I paid my respects. Now, what I'm calling about is the gun laws in New York City. Mm. If people in New York City could, could have a concealed carry uh, permit, because the, the criminals know that people in New York City can't carry guns. So all the law-abiding citizens in New York City aren't carrying weapons, and the criminals are. Oh, there's, so no, the, 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 there's no doubt. Explain to me, imagine if you, you were in New York City, what you feel that everyone should be able to do. Carry and conceal. Well, you know what I'm saying? Because all the criminals know that all the law-abiding citizens can't do that. So they have illegal guns which probably could have saved the life of that poor guy that killed that got killed going to a brunch. You know what I'm saying? Because if, you know, if the average law-abiding citizen in New York could carry a weapon concealed, that will probably cut down a lot of crime. Well, let me, let me explain to you what is uh, over the horizon. The United States Supreme Court has heard a case of two New York State residents who challenged the fact that they do not make available more carry permits in New York State. It's very limited. You really have to have a lot of connections. Uh, The only people who really have a carry permit are businessmen or businesswomen who uh, carry a sizable amount of money. If you happen to be a minister of prominence, uh, an elected official, a judge of prominence, a sports star of prominence, a talk radio show host of prominence, you can get a carry permit. When I was shot on June 19th in 1992, five times with hollow point bullets and was recovering in uh, Bellevue Hospital, uh, members of the uh, the squad there that gives those permits, which are very limited, said that I would qualify for a carry permit because they were continuing to threaten my life. And I said, no, I can't. You know, I'm the leader of the Guardian Angels. We don't carry weapons here or anywhere in the world. What kind of a role model would I be if all of a sudden I'm carrying a weapon and they can't carry a weapon? But the United States Supreme Court has hinted that they've already made a decision. Now, we don't have a draft of an opinion from either Kavanaugh or Alito or Thomas or any of the judges that we think would be favorable towards the citizens' right to have a carry permit. But apparently the United States Supreme Court, Al, will rule on behalf of all gun owners in New York State and will say if you qualified for a premise permit, that means to have a gun in your place of business or a gun in your home, which you can't transport and must remain there, then you should be able to qualify for a carry permit. So whether concealed or not concealed, and our mayor, Eric Adams, instead of saying, okay, I'm not in favor of that, all he's even made it sound as if all of a sudden this is going to cause more of a problem. He has less problems with gangbangers having guns than he, he would with law-abiding citizens having guns because he has said 
that as a former trained professional police officer who is able to carry a gun as a retiree, he doesn't think that average uh, average men and women uh, who have uh, permits uh, for a premise uh, weapon would have the ability to have a carry permit, and he couldn't be more hopelessly wrong out. Well, the problem with Adams is that he thinks he's still the borough president of Brooklyn. I never thought of it that way. You're right. He's in charge. He, he hasn't come to grips that he's in charge of, of uh, 8 million people in the five boroughs. You know, he does a lot of ribbon cutting. And I've never seen a, a mayor go to so many ribbon cutting ceremonies. That's generally what borough presidents do, because other than that, they have nothing to do. What does a borough president do? What? Borough president can't even tell a sanitation guy, hey, pick up that uh, piece of gum wrapper there. They're powerless. They're impotent. Well, I'm the borough president. Well, what are you able to do? Years ago, they were able to flex. They had power. When all of a sudden a borough president was part of uh, the decision-making process in the city. And then that was ruled to be uh, illegal. Uh, how it existed back then. And then they were neutered and muted. And so all they do all day is at taxpayers' expense, they run around cutting ribbons and saying, oh, I'm the Manhattan borough president. Big deal. I'm the Queensboro president. Big deal. What the hell do you do? Well, you know, I have offices. Uh, I can use this uh, as a method of running for future office at taxpayers' expense. Anyway, our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Corey calling from Palm Bay, Florida. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Corey. Great to talk to you, Curtis. By the way, uh, are, you, uh, are you a Floridian by birth, or did you migrate there from uh, our area? I'm from Manhattan Beach, born and raised. Ah, what, what made you uh, go to Florida? Uh the freedom, like you said, you come down here and you can live and they didn't mask us up and just we're able to get a, around and we're able to carry firearms and we're able to do a lot of stuff and the, the state runs great. Do you uh, yourself, uh, do you yourself carry a firearm? Uh, usually two. Wow, two of them. You're a gunslinger. Well, I'll have one in the car. I got a 38 in the uh, center console. And then on my hip, I got a 10 millimeter. Not concealed, right? Oh, concealed, of course. Okay. We were a concealed carry. Uh-huh. It's actually quite quite stringent laws to get a concealed carry permit here, which people don't think it's like you just go in and you walk in. And you buy a gun and you can run around. It's not the case. Well, in fact, uh, you have supportive law enforcement. Uh, Just listen to uh, Sheriff Johnson, who uh, actually might as well be speaking for sheriffs of uh, police departments in every county in Florida. We don't know what homeowner, which homeowner shot at him. Um, I guess they think that they did something wrong, which they did not. If somebody's breaking in your house, you're more than welcome to shoot them in Santa Rosa County. We prefer that you do, actually. Wow. Now listen to what else Sheriff Johnson had to say in Santa Rosa County down there. And as I said, you know, uh, if somebody's breaking into your house, you've got all the right in the world to defend yourself. So, um, of course, he didn't get hit. 
and now we have to pay for him. So. So he was hoping that that homeowner could shoot him between the eyes and kill him so that they wouldn't have to bear the expense of three hots in a cot, free optical, free medical, and free trips to the law library, Corey. Yeah, well, God forbid I should ever have to do that. But the uh, the fact is it's written into the Florida State Constitution that if you have a concealed weapons license, that no city or town or municipality can tell you, you cannot bring your firearm into such city like we have in New York City because upstate it's different laws. As in New York, here it's in the state constitution that a city, so therefore I can go to Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, they cannot tell me I'm not allowed to carry. Well, you're right. It should it should supersede, unlike New York, which has these arcane rules, which uh, differ from upstate to western New York to central New York to the mid-Hudson Valley to New York City itself. Let's go to Gary calling from Inwood. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Gary. Good morning, Curtis. Uh, my son, who lives in Rockport, but works on the east side of Buffalo. He has a concealed carry. And he'll make a frequent appointments to meet me, and we'll meet in Yonkers on McLean Avenue. Sure. But he knows where he can go just so far. He won't cross the city line to go into New York with that gun. He's not allowed. Wow, that's amazing because McLean Avenue uh, is the gateway from Yonkers into what I call Little Dublin, which is Woodlawn in the Bronx. So if he were to actually cross over and have a cup of coffee with you at one of those uh, Irish cafes, he could be arrested for having that gun on his hip. Yeah, that's why we meet on McLean Avenue. We go to a, a famous Irish uh, saloon up there, Rory Dolan. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been there before. So who knows, once again, to keep myself, you won't go past McLean Avenue and say, Dad, I'm not putting it on the line today. Let me tell you something. Test it out, ladies and gentlemen. Up there, where Gary from Inwood was talking about McLean Avenue, you walk over to the Woodlawn Cemetery. That is a magnificent cemetery that has few, if any, visitors. You would think that you were back in the Deep South. Some of those mausoleums are the size of, I mean, huge edifices, almost like plantation style. And you look at some of the names of the people who were buried there, and you will recognize them. And you will say, wow, how come nobody? It's it's not like Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which is near Sunset Park and Park Slope. The same way, it is magnificent. But it's not comparable to Woodlawn Cemetery. Woodlawn Cemetery, and I'm a cemetery kind of guy, is probably the most magnificent cemetery I have ever walked through. If you've never been there, Go up to McLean Avenue where Yonkers meets the Bronx. It's Little Dublin there. Get yourself something to eat. You would think you were in Kulak, Finlock, Valley Fairmont, right in the heart of Dublin. And walk through Woodlawn Park. And I am telling you, it would be the equivalent of walking through Stanley Park in Vancouver, British Columbia. You might have an epiphany. Up next... What are they doing with our kids' curriculum in the Department of Education? This 
is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. He was a she, she was a he. I know she got all excited, Matt Blaze. I'm sure that if Lou Reed were with you on the Lower East Side, he might even chip with you and share that needle with you because he was a hardcore dope fiend. Huh? Listen, listen. Little Joe never once gave it away. Everybody had to pay and pay. A hustle here and a hustle there. New York City is the place where they said, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, Hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. Was he a he? Was he a she? It's theater of the mind, ladies and gentlemen. It's Lou Reed, a walk on the wild side. Sugar Pump Fairy came and hit the let him, let him keep singing, and I'm just going to talk over him right now. Because uh, the reason you're hearing me, where normally you would be listening to Frank Morano on the other side of midnight, is that Frank Morano has taken a walk on the wild side. No, it's not that he's a she, he, or a he, she, no. It's not a transgender, it's not a transvestite. Uh, he is uh, very confident in his sexuality, whatever that may be. When you walk around with a pocket protector uh, and you have these lapel pins, we'll talk about that uh, later on. But the reason that I'm here is that Frank Morano had the whole world before him recently at a ratings uh, ceremony and dinner honoring the contributions of all the talk show hosts and hostesses here at WABC by our owners and operators, John and Margot Katsimatidis of Red Apple Media, our parent company, hosted by the Capo di Tutti, the general manager, Chad Lopez, on behalf of not just uh, those who uh, speak in the microphone, but all those folks who operate behind the scenes. They extol the uh, successes and the achievements of Frank Morano. He was considered the golden child, the untouchable. He could do no wrong. In fact, he was labeled by Talkers Magazine, Michael Harrison, and he will receive that award this Friday uh, at uh, Adelphi University when they have their convention. These are talk radio hosts and hostesses, production personnel, management administrators from all over America who will descend there to the campus of Adelphi. They will hear from our own John Katsimatidis, our owner and operator, who is uh, the keynote speaker and is being given the award as uh, it's concerned. It's I don't know if uh, Michael Harrison is calling it the Lazarus Award, but it's sort of like resurrecting our station, which was on the scrap heap, didn't even show up in the ratings to the fact that we are considered the number one news talk station in the nation again. We have come from nowhere to somewhere. 
to supremacy against our competition, like WOR, Women's Only Radio, and AM 970, The Answer, where I spent four years, four years that I'll never get back in my life. When I came back to WABC, my place to be, I knew this was my home away from home. And so all this weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend, where I've been trying to encourage all of you, don't say happy Memorial Day. It's not happy. It's solemn. It's to honor our war dead. You want to be happy? It's upcoming Flag Day on uh, June 14th, which all of you have forgotten about. No, it's not for the Italian flag or the Puerto Rican flag. It's the American flag. And then, of course, there's our, uh, our birthday, July 4th, Independence Day. But there's a new wave afoot in what we call diverse America. It may have been pioneered by Lou Reed when he had that, uh, that shaft in his arm, like every day, pumping dope in the alphabet jungle into his veins and arteries. But that song, which has sort of been the battle cry for diversity as they walk on the wild side. And now it's not just affecting uh, our adults. But our kids in public school, wait till you hear this, ladies and gentlemen. You may have thought that you thought that we had reached our extreme limits. We haven't even touched that. This uh, Memorial Day weekend, you would have thought that at the largest uh, Air Force base that we have in Europe, at Ramstein, Germany, that there would have been the commemorations, the wreath layings. Veterans would have been telling uh, stories of their service uh, in America and their colleagues who perished in the line of duty. Yes, there was some of that in Ramstein Air Base. But they had scheduled a local drag queen named Stacy Teed to come in and give a 30-minute storytime presentation to a first-grade class of children who go to school on the base, who are the sons and daughters of the servicemen and servicewomen there. The notation said, make sure your children wear their brightest and most colorful outfits. At taxpayers' expense, the headquarters of the United States Air Forces in Europe had invited a local drag queen, Stacy Teed, to give a 30-minute storytime presentation to first graders, I kid you not, on the military base. It was called Drag Queen Story Time. Could you accompany this with a little Lou Reed walk on the wild side? Because, boy, this is a walk on the wild side. And uh, immediately, little Marco Rubio, you remember how he got smacked around by uh, candidate Donald Trump at that time. Uh, but with righteous indignation, he stood up and he said, wait a second. Does this exist on other military installations around the world? At taxpayers' expense, do you have drag queen story time in the elementary schools that are run on the bases for the daughters and the sons of our servicemen and servicewomen? We can't get an answer from the Department of Defense or the Pentagon. Apparently, drag queen story time rules. Oh, my God. Wait, it gets better. Let's look to the Department of Education, the DOE, which the acronym stands for, dumbest organization ever. 
replaced the Board of Education at 110 Livingston Street when Rudy Giuliani was mayor and gave this city a badly needed colonic. Remember how he said, we need to blow up 110 Livingston Street. And they said, oh, how jingoistic, how militaristic. Oh, you see, you're over the top, Rudy. He was absolutely right. And we did take the wrecking ball to the old Board of Education at 110 Livingston Street, and we replaced it with... The Department of Education, DOE, dumbest organization ever, and it is. Right in Tammany Hall, that's where they're housed, right before City Hall on Chambers Street. Tammany Hall! Let me not lose my temper. With a uh, budget of $36 billion just for education alone. $36 billion, that's one-third of the bloated overall budget of $100 billion for the whole city. You think maybe they'd take a billion or two out of that bloated Department of Education budget since there are 120,000 less students because their parents have fled New York City and put it back in the police department, which they defunded back when de Blasio was mayor and the city council was applauding the fact that we were neutering and rendering our police impotent? You think we could do that? Of course not. So this is what your tax dollars are going for, ladies and gentlemen. There are books being written by Anastasia Higginbottom. She's a white Brooklynite, children's book author. Hey, that's nice to have that on your resume, right? Not too imposing, not too threatening. Wait till you hear what she writes. Not math books, not English books, not science books. Nope. Uh, She claims that students... (laughs) from age two to five, two to five, so we're talking pre-pre-pre-K to like kindergarten and first grade, that they need lessons on racism, queerness, and liberation. And so she has a theme. She says, what you don't know. And it is her lead book that has garnered the City Department of Education stamp of approval by Chancellor Banks. And in a titular way, the swagger man with no plan, Mayor Eric Adams. It's on the fifth grade reading list. Quote, if you don't think reading about queerness and liberation is appropriate for 10-year-olds, then you cling to the oppressive, dying institutions of patriarchy and white supremacy. We're paying this woman money! Let me calm down. I'm having an anger management moment. Let me let me give you an idea. Having run in the mayoral campaign against Eric Adams and losing fair and square, education was one of those keynote issues that both of us had to comment about. Let me give you the analytics, the breakdown. Half of the students statewide have fallen below benchmarks in reading, 40% below their math benchmarks. That means the majority of black and Hispanic students, because they make up the majority of the city base of students, are not even performing at 50% capacity at reading or math. So what is it we're doing? We're indoctrinating them with books that literally glorify AOC and the squad members. They have a book 
about AOC, all-out crazy, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, leader of the Democratic Socialists of America, the justice warriors that make her out to be a princess at taxpayers' expense. And you're not permitted to say, if you speak up, hey, Randy, the wine, you know, wine garden, who used to be the union chief in charge of the UFT, Union of Failed Teachers, the local union, now led by Chancellor Michael Mulgrew. She's now the head of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, the largest teachers union nationally, in which she says, stick your nose and your fingers out of the curriculum and curriculum that is being taught to your children, leave it in the hands of the teacher, the Department of Education, and the other administrators who have been properly trained to do this. It's none of your business. M-Y-O-B, mind your own business. We should mind our own business. I have Anthony, my oldest son, who is 18, who will be graduating this June. He's an intern here at WABC. In fact, you can listen to Anthony speak with me in our podcast, Father and Son. It's Anthony and Curtis. All you got to do is go to WABCRadio.com and see the many, many podcasts, not just of the programs that maybe you didn't have a chance to listen to and you can catch up on it in the off hours. But many of them are specialty podcasts like a Father and Son, Anthony and Curtis. I think you'll like it. I also have my middle son, who is uh, Carter who is 13, just had his bar mitzvah. They let me into Beamer. Yeah, you know, reform. They're for reform Jews, not the conservative Jews. Uh, they liked my check, you know, for Hebrew school. It didn't bounce. And I looked at the rabbi and I looked at the cantor and I said, oh, you like my check because it doesn't bounce, but you won't let me up to the Beamer? He said, not in a conservative synagogue. Hey, so guess what? We're going to the reform synagogue for his bar mitzvah because I'm going to be up there. And it was. And then there's my youngest, Hunter, who's 11 years old. So there is a book out there that we're paying for. It's called Our Skin. Now, I'm looking at my skin. I'm a caucasoid. Uh, lots of uh, caucasoid. Uh, some other person might look at their skin. Like uh, in this case, you listen to them every, uh, every Monday through Friday from 4 to 5, right before the Cats Roundtable. And he's got a three-hour extravaganza Saturday mornings uh, from 7 to 10, Bo Snurdly. You look at his complexion, and he's got a lot of melanin factor. Well, according to our skin, uh, our children will read that, and it tells them that white people invented the concept of race to claim that they are better, smarter, prettier than anyone else, and that they deserve more than everybody else. This is a book. In the Department of Education, dumbest organization ever. Chancellor Banks, this is the Eric Adams administration that we're paying for that come September, our children will have to read in order to get credit in class. I don't want any of my three sons reading this garbage. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Wait. It gets even worse. Uh, Parents were not able to even ask questions about how they felt about this book, Our Skin. They tried to do it at a Zoom forum conducted by the Department of Education. And uh, 
they asked some questions of the chancellor's assistants like, do you really think whites invented racism? And if so, when? What century, roughly? At what age do you feel children should be introduced to such material without direct parental approval and involvement? And guess what? The Department of Education employees stepped in and disconnected them on the Zoom conference. All of this at taxpayers' expense. The Department of Educational spokesperson of the Adams administration said, look, I'd like to interject and say that what you parents were asking were racially charged questions. We have to stop you. What? What? Our skin is intended for kids ages two to five has been distributed to city schools and is on the kindergarten reading list for the Department of Education, dumbest organization ever. Again, the premise of this book that our children will have to read in order to get proper literary credit, Our Skin says that white people invented the concept of race to claim that they are better, smarter, prettier, and that they deserve more than everybody else. Did you know about this, ladies and gentlemen? Were any of you aware of this? The mayor, the swagger man with no plan, won't answer questions about this. Neither will his brand-new chancellor, Banks. Anybody out there know about this? Anybody outraged? Or are you just like, oh, well, well, you know, that's the way it is. I guess it's time to pack my bags and move to North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, move to Georgia, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and parts unknown. Uh, How about we stay and we fight for what we know is right and we improve and we don't move and we don't let them do this with our tax dollars. Without us, they don't get $36 billion to be able to have patronage appointments. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So one of the parents emailed Chancellor David Banks, and she wrote, I grew up in Brazil under military dictatorship, but until last night, I had never been told by a government official that I could not ask a question at a public forum. Achtung! (laughs) Do you think it's kind of inappropriate for our Department of Education, a.k.a. dumbest organization, uh, ever to silence parents and squelch debate over curriculum and school culture. This is all enhanced by what we heard Randy the wine or wine garden say, you know, is now the head of the uh, AFT American Federation of teachers. She used to be the head of the UFT union of failed teachers. And she uh, at times has been a regular guest of the John Katsimatidis five o'clock round table. And she's very open. Uh, she really believes this crap. By the way, speaking of John Katzmatidis, uh, he will be hosting uh, the morning show. Uh, Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg are off this Memorial Day, this Monday. So it'll be uh, our owner-operator, John Katzmatidis, and Lydia Serrani, the Albanian bad girl. And I call it the CNC program. It's sort of like... Uh, I guess you could say Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, since they're number one in the morning, say like Coca-Cola. Um, John Katsimatidis and Lydia Serrani in the morning is sort of like CNC Cola, right? It's CNC in the morning. I like that. 
I like that. Wait. It doesn't stop there. There are seven more books that our children are going to have to read. Did you know this? Of course you didn't. Because you figure, look, our mayor, his number one responsibility is to deal with crime. I agree. That's what he ran on, the law and order mayor. But while he's not doing anything to achieve that, and he is being uh, prevented from doing that, by the state legislature, which will not do anything about this no-bail law and this attitude in which they're friendly to the criminals and not the victims. All of this other stuff is being passed at various meetings that you have no say in. They are spending $200 million on this overhaul. Let me give you a a book that some of your grandchildren or great-grandchildren will be reading in second grade. I'm Not a Girl, a Transgender Story. In fact, there's a first-grade recommendation to it. Can you imagine a kid? Remember when you were in first grade? You could barely do the alphabet, right? You couldn't even read. But now you're going to have to read I'm Not a Girl, a Transgender Story. The book discusses the journey of a transgender child who people identify as a girl longing to be seen as a boy. I don't think first graders even yet comprehend the fact that they are fully a boy anatomically or fully a girl anatomically. Book number two, recommended for first grade readership, Love is Love. Uh, Lead character in this book says, I know lots of gay people. My teacher, Mrs. Adams, is gay. Police Chief Carter is gay. Mayor Sanchez is gay. There are even lots of famous gay people, singers and scientists and artists and athletes. My friend thinks we might have a gay president someday. Boudichet, boudichet, boudichet. Do you really think in the first grade kids know heterosexual, homosexual, lesbians, transgenderisms, or the 72 different terms that you can now self-identify as? Yes. According to the Department of Education, dumbest organization ever, if a child wants to self-identify as having one gender, one sexuality, and changes their mind the next day, you must accommodate that. So let's say they say, look, I'm a pansexual today. What the hell is a pansexual? Does it have anything to do with Peter Pan? I have no idea what a pansexual is. And then the next day, say to the teacher, Excuse me, Mrs. McGillicuddy, I've changed my mind. I now identify as asexual. I desire no sex at all. This is all part of the curriculum. Please, ladies and gentlemen, get your hands on this. You're paying for this. $36 billion out of a $100 billion bloated budget. Here is the next book, second grade recommendation, When Aiden becomes a brother, does that mean a white guy becomes a black guy? (laughs) I'm going to read. Oh, the book explores the journey of a young boy named Aiden coming out as transgender. When Aiden was born, everyone thought he was a girl. His parents gave him a pretty name. But as Aiden got bigger, he hated the sound of his name. He was really another kind of boy. Aiden's mother admits she made a mistake misgendering her son, saying, quote, 
When you were born, we didn't know you were going to be our son. We made some mistakes. But you, Aiden, helped us fix them. Then when Aiden's mother became pregnant, she was asked by someone whether the baby was a boy or girl. Aiden didn't like it when people asked if he was a boy or girl, and he hoped the baby couldn't hear yet. He hoped the baby couldn't hear yet. He was glad when mom just smiled and said, I'm having a baby. Wait! It continues. This is like the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can't buy one without having the entire set of encyclopedias. This is probably my favorite because I have participated in the New York City Mermaid Day Parade. As many of you know, I was King Neptune in the year 2000 and Queen Latifah. Yes, the Queen Latifah was my queen. But this book is called Julian is a Mermaid, recommended for kindergartners. Kindergartners. The book is written by Jessica Love, and it describes a boy who wants to become a mermaid. During the book, the boy repeatedly strips down to his underwear. Later, he puts on lipstick and dons a headdress. He is then given costume jewelry before being taken to the New York City Mermaid Day Parade where he can freely express himself. Kindergartner. You're paying for this $36 billion. There were 120,000 less students than from the year before, and yet the budget has gone up, not down. And Eric Adams, our mayor, is not saying anything about it, or his chancellor, Banks. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. But on the educational front, San Francisco leads and New York City follows. The San Francisco School District is dropping the word chief from all job titles out of respect for Native Americans. So if your job responsibility is as the chief technology officer, you're no longer chief. You're just the technology officer. Is this crazy or what? Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. And then our New York State Department of Education has said that uh, June 1st, what is that, about a day, right, June 1st, was supposed to be the region's test for history and civics. It's good to see they're teaching history and civics because for many years they didn't even touch it, touch upon it. Anyway, this region has been canceled because the language and content in the test could trigger trauma for students in the aftermath of the killings of the 10 African Americans in Buffalo. I want to know what the specific language is in this test. I already filed a request, and you know what I was told by the governor's office, Governor Hokum, which stands for nonsense? M-Y-O-B, mind your own business. We pay for this, too. So the young adults cannot take this regents, this history and civics regents, because the words, the language, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, I'm only, I'm only imagining, might trigger off trauma 
for students in the aftermath of the killings of the 10 African-Americans in East Buffalo. We've lost our minds. The inmates are running the asylum. It's one flew over the cuckoo's nest with Jack Nicholson. Yes, and they're Jack Nicholson. All of them at the state level, at the Department of Education, dumbest organization ever. And we're letting this happen. And I will bet you most of you don't even know this is going on because it's all about crime, right? Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. WABC. Founder of the Guardian Angels. The group dedicated to fight crime. On the streets of New York and on the air right now. Curtis Lewa on 77 WABC. Take him out, take him out, bring him out, dead, dead. Shot him up, shot him up, shot him up, hey, hey. One gun, two gun, three gun, four. Your mind is all about crime. On it, on It's time to get live, live, live like a wire. I said I hope it's safe. Yeah, on it. With their guns in the air like they just don't care. That's what's happening in New York City now. That's why you haven't really focused on the public school educational curriculum. Look, you're overwhelmed. You're planning on moving to Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Tennessee. And believe it or not, the Catskills. The Catskills, which was depleted with population, this year reports a surge in population. People from the five boroughs moving to the Irish Gouts, the Jewish Himalayas, to Sullivan County. See? You see this crap? Yeah, this is a song they sing on Rikers Island. Now, how do I know that? Because I've been locked up on Rikers Island. And once again, what has happened on Rikers Island, the rock? A sixth inmate has died in New York City custody. This year alone, 20-year-old guy, he's a murder suspect, so maybe some of you are Old Testament. Well, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No, no, no. This is out of control. Inmates are dropping all over the place. In fact, a total of 16 last year. You've got uh, six this year. They've lost control of Rikers Island, the correctional officers. They don't have control. It's the Bloods and the Crips who control the tears. It's the Trinitarios, the Dominican gang. It's MS-13, 18th Street. They've lost control. The Latin Kings rule. And unfortunately, our mayor, Eric Adams, has only gone there once since he was sworn in on January 1st. He needs to be there on a regular basis, his um, appointment. Uh, as uh, corrections uh, commissioner, a guy named Molina, dollar short, day late. The feds are going to take over Rikers Island. This is going to be an embarrassment to the city. Oh, oh, Molina did do one thing. <laughs> uh, there's something called commissary. You know, when you're locked up, even in a place like uh, Rikers Island, because you're only there for a few months, uh, usually you haven't been able to make bail, you're waiting to see a judge, waiting to be arraigned, or you've been sentenced to less than a year. So you're entitled to commissary every week. And uh, you have a commissary store near your tier. And you go in there and, you know, the number one most requested item is honey buns. Oh, my God, honey buns. That's like currency. Forget Bitcoin. Forget blockchain. 
Forget cryptocurrency in jail. It's like Connie buns. Ramen noodles, right? Used to be when cigarettes were legal in jail. Oh, <laughs> Newport menthols. Oh, people would kill for Newport menthols. But anyway, so Melina, instead of focusing on why are so many inmates dying under our care, uh, he has decided that he's going to scrap the commissary stores and instead have phone delivery. So that means you have phone privilege, which the gangs control. You, you ain't, you, if you're a poo-putt, if you're a Maytag, if you're like a Frank Morano guy with a pocket protector, you never get to use the phones because the gangs control it. In order for you to get to your commissary, they want you to call Amazon same-day delivery. The Amazon guy is going to come up there and deliver it to you in your cell or your dormitory. Who's thinking of this? No Amazon guy is going to go into the joint. The feds got to take over the rock. They really do. Anyway, let's go to Jeff in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. You know, what you're talking about now in the schools goes back a long way. It goes back to John Dewey's time in the 30s. Uh, You know, there was once a great book called Democracy and Curriculum, that came out, I think, in the mid-50s. Uh, George Count was the the guy who wrote it. There was another book called The Count, the Conquest of the American Mind. Uh, there, was, there was collectivism on campus. There, there have been books written about this movement. Now, a lot of this comes out of the Columbia Teachers College for years and the National Education Association and the other NGOs that are pushing this thing. Now, what I think is is... Nobody's going to pay attention to simple protests like this. Oh, God. We had to get an intellectual. Come on. I can't believe this. This guy's talking about John Dewey. This is John Dewey High School. It's right underneath the L, down the block from Lafayette High School, across from Marlboro High School, right? John Dewey. Look, public education was great. It was actually created by socialists, believe it or not. Yes! Public education is great, but you don't give public education an opportunity to put out titles on books that talk about transgenderism to kindergartners or those who are like two years old to five years old in pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-K. You think Jeff in Brooklyn knows that? He's still talking, right? He's still talking. He's talking about this book, that book. You know, he's in the Book of the Month Club. He's probably Oprah's Book of the Month Club. The only one who would understand what he's talking about is Bernard McGurk, who also reads all these books. I ask a simple question, and I got to get an intellectually stupid response. Yeah, what do I got to do, read all those books? I can barely read a matchbook, a comic book, and you want me to read all these books. Our number is one 800 Let's go to Jeff in Forest Hills. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for gunning that. I don't know, man. I'm like, holy cow, what's he talking about? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm like, you know, I thought you were going to go with him. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to really. All right. So I'm hanging in. Um, I, lived, I lived. My buddy had a place on 112th and 2nd, right? So across from us was the Jefferson Houses. So he had the seven floor and the roof. So when they were doing my place, I shacked up on the couch for about a month. I tell you, it was a lot of, I'm from Long Island, right? So living there was like cops every night because you hear the, 
and they were jumping out of cabs. There were, you know, guys around the corner. There was a deli right across the street, a bodega, and they, you know, I never knew what a chopped cheese sandwich was until I moved up there. You, so, wait, wait, wait a second. Jeff, you discovered the chopped cheese sandwich in the bodega on 112th and 2nd, which I've been to many times after armed robberies of that place. Did you put the hot, yeah, right did, did you yeah. put the hot sauce on the chopped cheese sandwich? Well, I didn't know that until I heard a, 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 a Latina. You know, she went there and ordered a hot sauce, and I smiled. I said, yeah, put a little hot sauce on mine, too. You know, like I knew what I was doing. By the way, yeah, remember, Jeff, it was in the middle of the campaign against Donald Trump to be president. Hillary Rodham Clinton, in order to show that she was fly, hip-hop, and happening with, uh, 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 what is that, Hot 97. More guns, more drugs, more drive-bys. She had to pull out of her uh, bag when she was doing the interview the red hot hot sauce. You remember that, Jeff? This hot sauce, yeah, yeah. She had a yeah. Yeah, we really believe she walks around with hot sauce in her uh, no. Prada bag. No, you know, I know. I always wanted to call her bluff face to face. See how she holds a piece of pizza. How she. Now, hold on, hold on a second, Jeff. You are not going to digress. What the hell was a white boy from Long Island doing in the Jefferson Projects, hanging with the homies? I lived across the street outside the projects, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, wait a second, wait a second. That's yeah. East Harlem. That is a rough area. We're not talking the, yeah, the, the part with the Mexicans. We're not talking the part with the hipsters and millennials moving. That is hardcore. What were you doing there, Jeff? I used to walk through the park, come out by Rayos, walk up through the Pleasant Avenue. Matter of fact, one day I came home, I said, yo, Mick, yo, they're building something over there. I don't know these guys, the Italian dudes over there with wood. He's laughing. He goes, bro, that's a Jeter. What the hell is that? He goes, you'll see. They're going to have a feast. Yeah, I got stories about that. It was a good area, man. We went to the feast. Oh, so you went to, wait, wait. You went to Ujulio where they were lifting the statue. Ujulio. Did you have the muscles to lift Ujulio or did your three-piece set drop when you lift Ujulio? I didn't look at I didn't lift. I just wild mink. I said, whoa, look, I'm, you know, like I said, we're two Irish dudes hanging out over there. They thought we were feds. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cool. I actually knew somebody over there. But, hey, um, hey, wait a second. Yeah. That's right on Pleasant Avenue. Uh, those are the days of fat Tony Salerno, who uh, Mike Kumbada Cheech, Rudy Giuliani, put away triple life without parole, head of the Genovese crime family. Yeah, you know, I saw a guy one afternoon. He was sitting outside on a folding chair. He had the AM radio, getting sun, listening to the Yankee game. You would have thought you were in the 70s. Yeah, no, I and having the uh, sausage, and, uh, sausage and pepper sandwich there. <laughs> yeah, so we're on the roof, and we lived in a private, this was a private house, right? Across the street from the Jefferson houses was a private house. So we had the seventh floor roof right. So we'd go up there and drink beer, hang out. So we'd see the cops coming up on the roofs because, you know, you, you're looking around, you're looking up, you could see the head sticking over when they hit the, hit the top of the roof. So he's like, oh, yeah, those guys are doing verticals. I don't think anybody knows what that word is, but I heard you say it a few times, so that's why I think Oh, yeah, well, let me me explain to the non-cognoscente. In the Jefferson Housing Projects, you have a PSA unit. Those are housing police. They're NYPD. But years, for years, they would have to do verticals. They would have to start start at the bottom of the stairwell and work their way up, sometimes 20 flights, because that's where all the thugs and thuggets would hang out, 
They would bust the lights so that if the uh, working class people with the project were coming home, especially on payday, they could rob them there because then they would vandalize the uh, elevator uh, so that that would not work. And so that was a mugger's delight. And now the cops no longer do it because they had a rookie cop uh, in the pink housing projects, I think, uh, on uh, Linden Boulevard in East New York who uh, went up the stairwell, freaked out, got nervous, pushed the gun, uh, pushed the door open with the gun while he had his finger on the trigger, this rookie cop, an Asian cop, and blasted this guy into the hereafter who was just innocent, who was trying to come down the stairs with his girlfriend, because guess what? The elevator had been vandalized. So now they don't do verticals anymore, Jeff. That's horrible. They, 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 that's horrible. That's the first thing he should reenact. You have to do you have to do verticals. Imagine you're living in these huge complexes. There are three hundred NYCHA public housing projects in the city. In Brownsville, never ran, never will. In Brooklyn alone, there are eighteen. If the cops do not do the verticals, then the gangs control the stairwells, which mean they control the projects, which mean that the elderly are entrapped in their apartments and their working-class people, because a lot of working-class people live in the projects. They pay rent. There are others who pay no rent or they subsidize rent, get mugged on a regular basis. And we can't permit that, Jeff. No, 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 no. That's not permittable. No. Now, yeah, you still, you, there, you right? still, you, you, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. I'm a wise and high man. Well, you live there. You're two Irish guys. What the hell are you living? Yeah, I, well, he lived there long. I just stayed there. I was there about a two months waiting for my place to get done. No, I know. You're and shacked it, up there. I understand. But 112th and 2nd Avenue. Come on. You sure you yeah, got I used to walk the dog. No, no I'm we sure you did. Board. The Pitbull Terrier, the Rottweiler to protect your yeah, stash. And, yeah, and yeah everybody wait, wait. Knew you you had a pit, right? Yeah. Yeah, see, now but we're getting closer to it, Jeff. You're at 112th and 2nd <laughs> Avenue. You got your freaking stash there. You two white guys, they think you're five old cops. You're undercover. You're feds. And meantime, yeah. you're making mad money. I wish it was like that. I was holding a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> sledgehammer. <laughs> oh, man. Jeff, yeah. Jeff, let me ask you a question, Jeff. Yeah. Why do you run this game on me? Why do you why do you use technology on me? You know, Jeff, I know the deal. I, I know, but it's not like that. I would straight I would listen, I tighten you up, I tell you the truth right away. Yeah, I'm sure. Not, uh, like uh, do it on the Bible, not, I want you to do it on the Talmud, the Torah, I want you to do it on I the Quran. If, if I'll I smoke a blunt and drink a brew, but my parents didn't put me on this Jeff, earth to sell Jeff, weed. If I strapped you to a lie detector test now and asked you one question, you'd be blown to kingdom come. <laughs> That's you're funny. You no, see, I'm no, you too, you, I, I I should have been a cop, good cop, bad cop. Just let me in there. I'll sweat him down. Because I've heard, I've heard every ruse in the world. So think about it, Jeff. Two white Irish guys, 112 Second Avenue. They got a pit. They got a stash there. They, I know they got a stash there. Kukina, right? Because nobody's going to expect them. Oh, they are no 5 undercover FBI forever busting Irish and Italians and Islamists, right? So they got the perfect cover. Their complexion is their protection. Oh, it was just there a few months. Yeah, sure you were. Uh, our numbers one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Now, do you think Frank Morano could have sweat down those guys? 
Of course not. Frankwood is uh, it's quite plausible. It's quite believable. Hey, you should come out here to uh, Staten Island here. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, oh Stapleton Projects, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, Mariners Harbor. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yes. They're going to get over on me. Don't even, out there, don't even try it. Because I'm going to drop you with words. I'm not going to pop you. I'm going to drop you with words. The brothers try to do that all the time. They see me, white boy, they say, yeah, come on, you know. That was the 60s and 70s. We'll get over on this guy like a fat rat. Try it. Let's go to Robert in Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Robert. Good morning, Curtis. I find your discussion about what books should and shouldn't be read by kids in school interesting for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that uh, I taught history to high school and college kids. I taught 40 years on the high school level, almost 40, and 20 on the college level. So I uh, always had the problem of, not the problem, I don't call it the problem, I call it the interaction with parents if they came in and I was all, my door was always open, which uh, a teacher should never keep the parents out unless they're unruly. And I'm sure you know that some parents can be almost an even more unruly than the kids. Absolutely. But But if they wanted to come in and talk about what I was making them read, or what what was on the uh, list of voluntary books, if they were interested, I put out a a, um, a syllabus every year, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I get I get quite more I get quite pronounced what books you don't want your 11 year old to read. Okay, that's your right. Now I'll throw a question at you, one historian to another, because you've read history. Would you want your 11 year old to read, say? Uh, D. Brown's marvelous, incredible book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee? Not at that age. Uh, high school. High school. Because I've been to, wounded, I've been to wounded Knee. I've been so with him. Many times. Right. American Indian Movement, uh, Dennis Banks. Uh, uh, I've met them all. I've dealt with them. You really have to have a, a much better understanding to even delve into that kind of uh, writing. So, yeah, maybe towards the junior or senior year of high school, if... First of all, okay. if you had that's, that's, if you had normal grade level reading, as you know, a lot of these children they can't even read at grade level. These young adults. That, that's that's true. But remember, D. Brown's book doesn't deal with the American Indian movement. It goes up to 1890. It starts with the early wars, uh, of which I'm uh, I would consider myself a specialist. Drawing one of my specialties is the American frontier in the Old West especially between 1800 and 1900. I used to teach a graduate course at City University Graduate Center on West 42nd Street, uh, the title of which was um, Manifest Destiny and Its Consequences, 1800 to 1900, Who Won the West, Who Lost the West. Okay, that was a graduate course. So you wouldn't want uh, anyone in elementary school to read D. Brown's book. Well, well, okay. I learned in elementary school, fifth grade, Alan Topol was probably the best teacher I ever had in my entire life. That was a public school, PS 114. We uh, spent an entire term uh, studying Manifest Destiny, the Louisiana Purchase, the desire of the United States uh, to control everything in the Western Hemisphere through Manifest Destiny. So I think if a kid is at grade level and fifth grade, sixth grade, they can handle that. You know, it's interesting that you, 
most people don't realize that the actual term manifest destiny was not even used. The first time it appeared, as far as we know, was in a newspaper in 1845, uh, the Democratic Review, or some paper that long ago disappeared into the oblivion. Remember, this is the era when James Polk was president of the United uh, States. My favorite, in fact, I was just with the American populace uh, on Saturday after I finished the show from 3 to 5. I was the keynote speaker. I said my favorite president of all times from my studies, James Polk from Tennessee, served only one term. And the beauty of James Polk is... He invited citizens to come to the White House and sit and talk with him. People would come by train, by horse. They would wait hours, and he would personally see them and listen to them and exchange in conversation with them. You would never, ever expect an elected official, even at the lowest spectrums and levels, to engage in that kind of conversation. That's really what they should be forced to do. Now, here's the interesting thing about the Polk administration. He came in, and he had a definite platform. One of the things he wanted was a definite boundary with the British, you know, 54-40 or fight. Where would the boundary be? Would it be Oregon? Would it be Washington? Where in Canada? Blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was the era when Texas was annexed. Remember Texas after the Independence uh, Rebellion in 1836? The Alamo. Uh... Now, the only thing we know about Texas now is... The uh, the monster who killed the 19 children and the two teachers. And uh, as you mentioned, the Alamo, the former teacher Robert there. We were told Alamo, see, Texas tough. Even though they were not from Texas, those who were hunkered down in the Alamo. You had Davy Crockett, remember? Oh, the Disney films, they portrayed it well. Santa Ana and the Mexican troops who attacked the Alamo and wore them down and killed most of those individuals. There were a few survivors. We were told Texas tough, right? And then Chuck Norris, right? Extraordinary martial artist who played Texas Ranger. I even remember him wrestling a bear and winning. Texas tough. And then when I went down there and I formed the Guardian Angels in Houston and Dallas in the 80s, they had an outrageous crime problem, especially Houston, which had absolutely no zoning whatsoever. You could have a church next to a porno palace, next to a garbage dump, and crime everywhere. And I remember I would see the cops would show up with these uh, red cowboy hats. You know, they all look like Don Imus with the cowboy hats. You know, Texas tough. We don't need guardian angels. We got forty-four caliber here. That's right. We'll blast them into the hereafter. You saw what those 19 cops did. Nothing. Where was Texas tough? <sighs> wow. You talk about a stereotype that was completely destroyed in the inability of law enforcement to respond to the pleas of those children, many of them who were calling 911. And we can't say it enough. We've seen the videos pushing the parents away and the loved ones. Parents begging, beseeching the cops, go in, go in, go in. They wouldn't. Then let us go in. No, you can't. It's a crime scene. Tasering them, pushing them back, arresting. One father who went on the yellow school bus, his daughter had been rescued. She was traumatized. She was screaming in agony and pain. 
said, let me comfort my daughter. Get off the bus. They handcuffed him, brought him out. They did nothing. You know what it reminds me of? The American spirit. Those Mexican-Americans had gathered up almost like a football huddle. And they were going to do what Americans did when uh, United Airlines 93 was taken captive, remember, by the terrorists of Osama bin Laden, al-Qaeda. And that uh, flight was hijacked. The terrorists were now piloting the flight. They were 18 minutes away in western Pennsylvania, and it would have smashed into the Capitol, the Capitol building, where the House and the Senate meets. And then all of a sudden, as Todd Beamer, who led the effort of the passengers and the crew that were pushed in the back by the terrorists who were, who were threatening harm if they came forward to the cockpit, Todd Beamer, they all met, they took a vote, and they said, we got to take them out. It'll probably mean we all die, but we got to take them out. And then remember the famous cry, the battle cry. Remember the Alamo? This one was, let's roll. And they crashed right into the cabin where the two terrorists had taken over as pilot and co-pilot. They disarmed the other two terrorists uh, who had straight-edge razors and were slashing the passengers. And that caused the plane to immediately crash into the fields of Shanksville. That's toughness. That's American toughness. And increasingly, as crime is out of control everywhere, we saw the situation on the J train. It's now gone viral. That maniac was uh, going up and down as the J train went over the Williamsburg Bridge and then pulled into the uh, subway station at Essex and Delancey. And the men, grown men there, some of them six feet, 200 pounds, solid muscle, had just come out of the gym. We're terrified of this maniac. But they filmed it. They wouldn't fight. And then, remember, he reached out as a, a woman tried to get away. He says, where are you going? Get over here. And he grabbed her by the head. She was lip-syncing. She was saying to her, please, help me. Save me. He's going to kill me. He's screaming invectives at him. He's kicking at windows. Those men could have taken him down. They were cowards. They were cowards like the 19 police officers outside of that school. Unfortunately, everything I grew up with in America is coming unglued. I thought Texas tough. Cops are tough. They're proactive. They're not reactive. Citizens will band together and do the right thing. Oh, I did it as the guardian angels. We were called vigilantes. We were accused of taking the law into our own hands. Well, they're pushing us in that direction by their own feckless lack of response, their weakness, their inability to save those who cannot save themselves. The elderly, the women, the children, the infirm. It's a scar on our soul. So, ladies and gentlemen, I took you through four hours of the Frank Morano show. Uh, I have pledged to management and ownership here that if anybody ever says, oh, I can't show up, do best of, it's always worst of. We're live and local. That's why we're the number one news talk station in the nation. And even though Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg will be out this morning, you have the dynamic duo. It's CNC. It's John Katsimatidis and Lydia Serrano from 6 to 10. But up next, you don't have to go to 1010 or CBS AM. We got the best hour of news in the business. 
keep it right there at 770 AM. And I'll be back for your lunch hour. That's right, 1215 to 1 o'clock, right after you get your updates from Bill O'Reilly.